Hello and welcome to Something Rotten, our final episode on The Last of Us Part 2, at least the part of it that we've gamed. It's a little joke for our guest there. Uh, I am Jacob Geller. I'm here with Blake Hester. Uh, Blake, I, I assume you spent the last, uh, I don't know, three weeks of your life also playing this game at every given moment because it is so goddamn long. Uh, how do you feel that it's over? Uh... I feel all right. You know what? Here's my take. I'm ready to drop this. Not a lot of people will say this, Jacob, but I'm going to drop it at the top. Fuck the haters. I think this game's all right. <laughs> I'm into it. And that's how I came out at the end of it. Uh, but I'm glad it's over. It's, it's, it is a burden of a game, no matter how much I like it. Just be like, oh, what do I got? 18 hours left to play in a week? A true, a true ball and chain of an interactive experience. It is. I, uh, I told uh, my partner Annie uh, when we had left the farmhouse. I was like, just so you know, there is two hours left of this game, and she screamed. Yeah. Uh, she, yeah. <laughs> she, she could not uh, contain her frustration uh without just hollering out loud hey this podcast is hosted by henson razors and i'll tell you a part of this game that could have used a good trim <laughs> that's right <laughs> brought to you by henson razors uh throughout this series we have had uh a number of wonderful guests and we are continuing that trend today because it's not just blake and i talking about the end of the last of us 2 we are also joined by cameron kunzelman of the ranged touch podcast network of which you might know uh gosh how much time do you have just king things shelved by genre homestuck made this world uh the fallout one what is that one called cameron welcome the fallout one yeah yeah from from tip to top the fallout one <laughs> uh, starring them cameron welcome to something rotten thank yeah. you so much for talking yeah, to us no, no problem how about uh how about this game how about this game so we have brought up I have brought up specifically um, your thoughts on this game, at least the published thoughts, several times throughout our series, because um, you have a book that has a chapter on it. The world is born from zero. We've talked about a lot. You also wrote for Polygon um, uh, an essay on how The Last of Us became, quote unquote, the greatest story ever told in a game. I think those quotes are very important because uh, you are the first to say not your stance, uh, but kind of the stance of the uh, gaming media writ large, perhaps. Yeah, people didn't, uh, didn't, they didn't like those quotes, those quote marks. Um, I was at work when that, so the, the you know, a little behind the curtain on the greatest story ever made. I get an email while, I, while, I'm, while I'm like doing my day job, my thing that's not video games in any capacity. And it's like, what do you think about this? And I was like, oh, whatever, you know, like title wise, headline wise. So, oh, whatever. And I was, I'm like sitting there right, three hours into some marathon meeting. And I went, oh, people might not pay attention to those mm. quotation marks. <laughs> Maybe we need to take a rerun at that. Log on to the internet. Yeah, that's true. That, that was factually correct. But at least the piece is good. The piece that's is true. good. It's good well, hopefully it's good. Hopefully people think the piece is good. Cameron, before we start talking about The Last of Us proper, I do want to ask you, uh, you asked me to nail down the timing of this podcast uh, because today is farm day. Uh, you said, "How's how's farm day? What do you have to do uh, today other than record this podcast?" Far farm day, farm day is normally you know a day where you just get a bunch of farm stuff done. 
you know, we got I got like mow. I need to do some mowing. I need to uh, harvest a bunch of peppers. All my shishito peppers became very spicy. You know, there, there's like a heat to soil ratio for shishito peppers where they get too hot. I don't know if y'all know mm. this. I don't know if this has come up on this podcast oh, before. Yeah, it comes up Shishito peppers can. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Um, so everyone knows. So then you're, And so, like, they've all become hot, so I need to, like, strip all those off and, like, let them... Hopefully they'll reflower again before the end of summer. I just harvested all the potatoes. Can you do anything with those? Can you, like, pickle them or something? Or are they just kind of a lost cause because they're too hot? They're just hot. Like, I enjoy growing peppers, but I don't like hot peppers. You know what I mean? So I, it's just a real... <laughs> Blake is making a face. Yeah, it's just like a real uh, gamer's dilemma. You know what I mean? Like, what do you... You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. You don't have the joy of completing the pepper. So, anyway... So doing that stuff, the battery in my car died yesterday, and so now I've actually spent all morning trying to figure that out. Like, what's up with my car battery? Do you live on a farm, or are you just doing farm things around, like, your front and backyard? No, yeah, I live I live on a what we call a farm. It is a, uh, you know, sure. I'm not incorporated. I'm not sure. getting a farm subsidy. I'm not getting, you know, Uncle Joe's not right. giving me that corn uh, grant, you know. But, uh, no, yeah, we do, uh, it's uh, kind of mostly permaculture farmy kind of stuff so nut trees and fruit trees and and things of that nature um stone fruit i mean i'm in georgia so peaches are a thing though this year uh much less of a thing right as as a peach yeah. lover i've been uh sad and disappointed this year a 90 percent crop loss i've heard uh for peaches in georgia this year same with strawberries strawberries got hit like a 70 percent crop loss i think so that you know that's just the kind of thoughts i'm having every day uh you know that farm thoughts but yeah so yeah we uh about a year ago um moved to a, a forested property and started doing that stuff. that rocks um i've never not lived in just a like major metropolitan area but i have families that are farmers and i go out there and it's just like you can hear your thoughts, which is sometimes not great. Sometimes I yeah, sometimes don't I don't always appreciate that. But you go out and you see stars for the first time in your life, and you're like, this is the life. And then I go back to my one-bedroom apartment where I hear my neighbors arguing every single night over who God only knows what. And I was like, well. And you think, God, if I, could, if I could choose one place to live in the world, it would be a farm out in the middle of nowhere yeah. <laughs> where you could walk through your fields of wheat and gaze up. At your pale painted house. Where the only arguing I would hear would be the internal terrors of my own brain. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I assume is something that you hear anyway, but just in addition yeah, to Yeah, it's a real problem. Well, I'm trying to work through it. Anyway, let's talk. <laughs> I recently, well, here, let me just finish my thought. I recently moved and I inherited seven chickens from the previous owners. So, you know, we've all got a, a, little, bit of, a little bit of farm experience that maybe we'll be able to apply to the game that we played today. And I've been thinking about moving to Jackson, Wyoming, for no specific reason. Oh, all right. All right. I guess none of this really has much to do with the mm. game, but... Definitely not. I've heard it's the only peaceful place in the entire world. Um, so, this section of the podcast, we're going to talk about uh, the the end of The Last of Us 2. We ended... Um, Blake, you were so right. Last episode, you were like, if you had watched one more cutscene, it would have been a way better... Uh, stopping point and it would have been because it was just the end of abby's day two and for some reason i decided that we should stop uh just before that but anyway 
Um, essentially, he decided let's stop in the middle of a combat arena. Look, it's really hard to define twenty five percent marks for this game. I uh, tried my best. Yeah, you want to pick up with action. You want to br- you want to come in with action for your final episode. You know, the middle of the combat arena is the perfect place to stop. That's right. So I got rid of that rat king. I walked out. I watched a whole cutscene where Mel called Abby a piece of shit. Okay, does Mel know that Abby and Owen slept together? Because I always thought that's what this cutscene was, but a later, later, I it cast doubt that she knew specifically that they had slept together. Because Abby like comes back and Mel's there, and it's like she's not stoked about it, which I feel like ruins that moment for me, where the intensity of it is Mel has learned that Abby and Owen have had sex, but I don't actually don't know if that's the case. I feel like. I feel like she does know and is just doing the uh, compartmentalization required of uh, someone living in the post-apocalypse where she's like, I'm mad. I'm going to walk away. Here's the thing. We still all need each other. Is it weird that Owen doesn't bring it up to Abby afterwards in any of their conversations to be like, oh, by the way, I had to tell Mel about my extra marital affair? Owen might be the most underwritten and mysterious character I've ever encountered in a video game. He is like a Final Fantasy VI NPC level of like, just whatever happens he'll react yeah. to, but has no internal consistency. It just logic. feels like that's a missing conversation in this game after Mel has her confront- confrontation with Abby. Is that like, Owen might be like, ah, guess what? I kind of had to spill the beans on this. It kind of feels like Owen is just a guy who is going to be... uh very nice to whoever he is in the room with at that moment you know like when when he's with mel he's like oh yeah no we're our relationship is like rock solid and when he's with abby he's like we don't need mel we can just run away and it doesn't it doesn't seem like he has kind of maybe the emotional core to be like i'm going to hold the same thought at two different times well there and there are moments of like he becomes the vehicle for i mean he's a plot vehicle truly he he is a two-dimensional guy he's just there to make things go forward there's the moment where they're gonna go to the island and he's like i can't let him go alone and mel is like you know this is not said but it's like you're gonna leave this one single pregnant person alone here and like everyone in the room right like you know you're sitting at home on your couch screaming why is this occurring and he it is so it is played so straight uh despite the fact that it is objectively in any form of character logic a nonsensical statement right and that like to me condenses all of his character down to to one thing um he just doesn't I think you're right. He cannot carry a thought from scene to scene. I also think it's weird that, like, the game is written in such a way that you never see him and Mel enjoy being together at all. Like, it is so clear that he does not, like, frankly give a shit about Mel. Like, he is he's going to have a child with her. But, like, the game makes no attempt to, like, create an interesting love triangle. It's just like, yeah, he loves Abby and uh, he's uh, got Mel, too. It's like it's a clearly missing part of his character. Well, it's a, but it's because she is under she she does not have a character. Mel is truly not a character. She is a weird bummer at the beginning. You know what I mean? Like this one aberrant character at the beginning of the game, and then truly at the end is just pregnant woman, pregnant no, woman number two. You know, quite literally, uh, it, you know, on the call sheet, it, 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 there is no character there to discuss. It's it's distressing. Yeah, I think I was enjoying Owen's Jacob. I'm sorry, I've deep. No, no, no. Go on ahead. This one thing, but like, I think in the earlier sections of Abby's 
levels, I enjoyed Owen a lot more because I enjoyed like getting to watch kind of the arc of Abby and Owen. But the more it hit here where these there was like these very pivotal scenes to the game and to these characters, and I thought more about Owen, I was like, there's a lot missing here. And it's I think the dynamic between him and Mel is like a huge missed opportunity for this game to deliver any, not any, but like some pretty pivotal characterization. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, what we get with uh, Ellie and Dina and Tommy later can kind of function because we like know who those people are and it really does feel like with Abby's whole squad it's like they attempt to kind of do similar character beats but because we don't know who any of them are it's like at the beginning of the game there are seven people standing in a room killing Joel and we kind of have to get like five minutes with each of those people and and then that's uh, kind of all the game does with them and I think sometimes in the moment it works like it's it's like a welcome change of pace for Abby and uh, Manny to be like joking through it after playing Ellie where shit is just like so dour in the second and third days but it's like if you were to ask me anything about Manny I could tell you he's horny he's a he's a horny man and that's it yeah and so it's like when you're like playing it second to second it's like well at least it's not like torture porn a lot of the time but he's he's from Mexico he has a grandfather oh yeah um I think they talk about food at yeah, one point. You know, he, he, he cuts had... the line to get food. Um, yeah, that's I right. mean, and it's it's kind of, it's part of the thing that this game does where it's like the acting for all the characters is good. And like their faces look, uh, you know, they have so many expressions and whatever that it's kind of, I remember the, uh, the first time I watched Netflix's House of Cards, a uh, show that has mm. aged impeccably. You're kind of like fooled into thinking that there is substance there because it was like one of the first times that I had seen a show that was doing like cinematography you know that was kind of trying to look like a David Fincher show and it's like the actors on that show are good and you have to watch like a season before you figure out like there's nothing happening here like the show is is like an empty bag of chips or whatever and I feel like I don't think The Last of Us 2 is an empty bag of chips, but, like, they can get so far just because they have good actors and good facial capture that it kind of takes longer to realize that some characters just don't uh, have anything behind them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a AAA game problem. For sure. In general, where you can throw so much money at the screen and people will, like, fall over their own feet to give it game of the year, but... We're not podcasting about every other AAA game. We do. Actually, Cameron, I have a question. Um, when you're when you're playing games for writing books, what is your process? Like, did you, when, when you were like, I'm going to write about The Last of Us, um, do you just play through the whole game again? Are you, you know, do you watch YouTube, you know, like cuts together of the story or whatever? Like, how how experienced do you feel like you are with these games as a whole as someone who's, like, written about them several times. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've, I've thought about this several times, you know, about, like, process here and compared with other people who write longer work. I think I might be the person with the most published work on The Last of Us, um, you know, other than people who are, like, writing news posts about it. Um, you know, I, I've, I think I've written something like, I don't know, I, counting my dissertation, because there, there's a big chunk on The Last of Us in that, that isn't really published anywhere else it's similar to the stuff that's in the world is born from zero i probably got like sixty-five thousand words about the last of us like running around in the world so i've done that and for most of those pieces um i've replayed either the whole games or a chunk of it so i've played the last of us one i don't know ten times or something nine ten times a lot um and i replayed it 
uh, or replayed 95% of it for um, the the piece that I wrote, whatever, last year, earlier this year, whenever that came out, the, the Polygon piece. Uh, so I, I replayed a big chunk of it. And, um, you know, that's been a big thing on the Assassin's Creed project that I'm working on. Um, I... I replayed all those games that I'm like somewhere, somewhere between 1500 and 2000 hours in the last of us over the last two years, you know, or not the last of us, but Assassin's Creed. So I don't know if that is shared with everyone. You know, I, I talk to other people who write it, especially about kind of really story heavy games. And I don't know that if everyone does that, but you know, I've been reviewing video games professionally and unprofessionally before that for, for a decade. Um, and like, your ability to make the claim and to make the argument and to make it persuasive. And this is probably like Austin Walker talking in the back of my head. Right. But like the way you make those claims persuasive is you do the damn thing, right? Like you're, you're able to talk about the minute piece of, of evidence that, that you have and you create a preponderance of evidence that, that makes the thing. So that's all to say, yeah, I, I've played these games a bunch of times. I played the last of us part two, probably, four times now i got about halfway through it for this show i i just couldn't i couldn't get through sure. it again. Um, longest game of all time it, because it it's just it's really something in terms of just like the number the game is entirely fetch quests right like in a way that are that is like almost lit rpg style right like the only way you understand that the plot is moving forward is the fact that you have to go and do something arbitrary um and uh you know, it's a, yet another one of those games, too, where if, like, two human beings had a conversation with one another, you could, you know, uh, avoid a lot of deep and dire conflict. And I imagine the game is thinking it's a commentary on that. I don't know one way or the other if I think it. But to answer all the way back, I've played these games a lot. I, I sit and play them again when I write about them. Um, I take really copious and extensive notes. I will refer back to long plays that people do, especially for, like, reading a cutscene or something like that. Um and the stuff in the la in the world is born from zero is really reading the cinematic image, right? You know, what is this borrowing from other media forms? Um, and so, yeah, you know, people's long plays without commentary are very helpful for just going and checking something. But I also take lots of screenshots. So, and yeah. do you um, uh, a common beat on this show is uh, in one breath we are like, man, uh, the things that this game is doing really sucks like this uh the way that they're depicting women in the la or in the darkness too uh is god awful and then mm -hmm. we were like we hate to admit it quad wielding in the darkness too feels pretty damn good <laughs> are, are you in these repeated playthroughs i mean especially of like part one are you able to find joy in the mechanics anymore D did you at all or is it is it entirely just a kind of workplace that you gotta do this in the same way that you have to like transcribe an interview it, yes it is entirely you know i mean there's like if there wasn't something there i wouldn't be writing about it you know what i mean like if i didn't think it were a valuable thing to do there there is no value for me in the world truly about just destroying the object in front of you right like I, I you know and maybe i've written pieces that read that way to people or feel that way but for the most part you know the vast majority of writing that i've ever done is not like you know fuck this thing and the horse it rode in on right but mostly like this is a complicated weird object and i find something interesting and fascinating about it or it tells us something about the culture we live in and so then therefore it's like really worth digging into i mean that's my feeling about the last of us part one and two i don't i don't i don't enjoy them you know i i don't think that they are like they express values and they have ideas about what the human is and the human experience is that i don't agree with and i think are objectively incorrect and i think in some in some ways if you 
operate from the assumptions that the last of us games give you you are diminishing the character of the human right like i i, I really do think that way about some of the assumptions made about these games um but you know they are mass media objects they are you almost can't get bigger than these things especially post tv show and so i think there's deep value in figuring out what are the mechanical ways uh what are the visual strategies what are the cinematic ways how do they do that stuff and how do they make a really persuasive claim you know the fact that probably the end of the last of us part one is the is the dominant ethical question in video games truly you know the one that is posited the most for people who play games uh, people feel like they need to have a strong opinion on it and i think there's a lot of outright dismissal of the that moment um and i think in my heart of hearts i'm also outright dismissive of that moment uh, but that doesn't mean it's not significant right you know and this is all i'm i'm repeating cultural studies you know this kind of movement from the 80s in the moment that 70s and 80s uh and what i'm saying right here i'm just repeating someone else right i'm i'm repeating Stuart hall i'm repeating raymond williams there's a lot of other people who have said this more and better than i have but i think it's true um and so but there, to me, there is not a strong fine to actually answer the question. There is not a strong and fine line between those two things to me, right? Like the work is the work. Um, and also I've had to review like a billion video games that I had no interest in one way or the other, but I had to find something interesting to say. And in some ways you just got to engage with things on their own terms and figure out what they're about and how they do it. Um, I'm kind of an anti-Ebert. I think like if you set things up and I, I know that y'all are more friendly to Roger Ebert than I am, but like the parameters of what is it trying to do uh, and does it succeed in trying to do that? I, I, I don't agree with that. I think that's like a, a rejection of judgment, like uh, of our capacity for judgment. But um, I am an Ebert in the like, the craft is the craft and you got to figure out what the craft is to talk about the craft. Uh, I think he was right in those ways. Do you think that it's um, sad that Robert Ebert's death uh, coincided almost uh, perfectly with the release of Bioshock Infinite, one of the true <laughs> video games as art? Moving um, on, <laughs> I I try to imagine sometimes Roger Ebert as a uh, interviewer uh, to an interview uh, game developers, uh, and I strongly encourage anyone who wants to have that experience to just go and read early Roger Ebert interviews <laughs> where he interviews directors that he likes a lot, um, and then I could I can imagine a world in uh, you know a young Roger Ebert in the 1970s interviewing Ken Levine and going Oh my God. The Skyhook is the most genius creation of modern storytelling. Like, you can see him saying that. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. That's a long... Uh, I, I'm uh, doing a range touch to y'all. I'm sorry. By talking at length about random. Blake, do you want to know what I think is wild? Jacob, I bet it's the fact that butterflies can taste with their the bottom of their feet. Okay. Well, now... <laughs> This has completely derailed the ad because I do need to know about that. But no, what I think is wild is we've been doing this podcast long enough that people have probably listened to us talk for like multiple full days. Yeah, people are dumb. What do you want, what do you want me to say? Okay, no, but, but that's not what's crazy. What I meant is that some people have listened to us talk for hours on end and they're still not signed up for Nebula. Wait, you're right. That's full on bonkers. I mean, do they not know how much better the show is on Nebula? That yeah. it's not interrupted by ads? That some of our best yeah. episodes are exclusive there? I mean, we're going to do a full-on commentary on the Mark Wahlberg Max Payne movie, and they'll only be able to hear it on Nebula. Hold on, we are? That, yeah, I haven't told you this yet. Oh my god, that sounds like a nightmare. Well, I'm getting mad about that, but I'm also getting mad about how many people have not gone to nebula.tv slash something rotten, especially since we give them a huge discount for signing up with that freaking link. Blake, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. 
disappointed mm. that they've been missing out on so much of our delicious thoughts and beautiful content. You lost me again. Shut up. Nebula.tv slash something rotten. <laughs> Was it weirder when Roger Ebert died on the day Bioshock Infinite came out or that Cormac McCarthy died on the 10-year anniversary of The Last of Us? Yeah, can you rank the well, weirdness of know. deaths of the authors for us? Yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I don't know of other like good synchrony. I'm sure someone really great died like the day that Tetris came out. Can we mm, figure that out? They were killed by Tetris. It's t- I think Well, it came from the other planet. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, that's, that's destroyed. Did y'all read the new Cormac McCarthy Mm -mm. books? No. Oh, you should. You should. They're good. You could turn them into a video game. There's a, there's a haunted oil derrick in one of them. Oh, we got to put some night vision on those. (laughs) If we've learned anything over since The Last of Us, it's that you can turn Cormac McCarthy novels into video games. And people eat that shit And you don't lose a beat. (laughs) Exactly as effective. Um, okay. Let's start talking about what happens in this section. Because there is... A lot. Um, so uh, we we wake up in the morning. Uh, essentially, Lev is gone. Uh, Lev decides that he needs to go back to his mom on the island, on the, the Seraphite island, to try to... I, I guess he's both, um, you know, wants kind of confirmation that his mom still views him as a person, but also is potentially worried that... Uh, they are going to do violence to her uh, because she uh, has a trans child, even though she seemingly uh, completely rejects the idea of such. Um, and so we get this part with uh, Abby and Yara going after him uh, to the island. And in this, there's this big uh, sniper set piece where you encounter, uh, if if you didn't realize it was Tommy, uh, surprise, it's Tommy. Um, Blake, sniper set piece good bad Too goddamn long it's good but it's so long it takes forever just being like it's like uh, that call of duty thing where it's like run from car to car and hide until you finally and it just goes on forever but it's cool i mean it's very cinematic it is fun. you're you're with manny the whole time who is the most just labeled for death character where you're just like this guy's gonna die the whole time he's there yeah you're with manny until you're not with manny and then Yara saves the day, which isn't fun because she doesn't get too many moments to come whoop some ass. But uh, yeah, I like this. But like after 15 minutes of it, it's like, I get it. I just want to like get beyond this, which I think is kind of a problem in this whole back section is like cool stuff. Why is there another 15 minutes of it? You know, I think I mean, this is we have somehow made it to part five of this series without really talking about the production of this game, which is like just because there has been so much to talk about in every episode. But this section has many parts where I was just like, man, you didn't need to crunch this hard, you know, that that they are they're like the scale of this game is so big and it's like crunch is not uh exclusively due to how big any game is but like there are things where it's like you could have cut 20 minutes out of this presumably thousands of hours of people's lives and like nothing fundamentally about the game would have been that different i think you could have cut the entire next level out of the game and maybe had a more uh, a better story interesting i have i have so many notes about that level i think the best part about the sniper part is uh we talked about before uh abby reacting to new information wordlessly is often very uh interesting 
And so in the beginning of the game, when she encounters Joel and Tommy and then realizes that they're Joel and Tommy, she has a very good wordless reaction. And in this, where she sees Tommy briefly and then he like falls over the dock and you see Abby just kind of be like, oh, fuck. Like, you know, realizing who he is 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 a good moment. And then uh, her kind of trying to play it off is like, okay, Yara, let's just keep doing the thing that we're doing. I'm going to try and pretend this doesn't exist right now. Uh, but uh, you got to imagine that it's just in the back of her mind the whole time. I mean, it's something only a studio like Naughty Dog can pull off, which is like, cool, is face facial acting, right? Like, th- it requires so much money to just animate a face. Hey, I played L.A. To be able. Okay, well, yeah, you know. Uh, uh... Yeah, all you need is volumetric <laughs> capture. And uh, also the most horrifying crunch conditions. Let me possible. back up. You need a studio with the kind of money Naughty Dog and Rockstar have, and the uh, uh, inability to set uh, realistic schedules, etc. But like, it is like a rare game with face acting that goes all in the way fucking movies and TV have done for a hundred years. But like, there are really good moments in this where other video games would have to write it out that they are able to animate something in the face of a character that says more than words would. There's a great moment with Dina's eyes later in the, like towards the end of this game where like she doesn't say a word in her eyes, tell the whole story, which is like literally acting one-on-one for other mediums. But in games is like a very rare thing, which I thought was pretty cool. It is. There's actually, there's this part that I've, I've been wanting to, or this thing that I've been wanting to talk about, uh, in regards to the game's production, which is this this thread that Jonathan Cooper, who was previously like a Naughty Dog animator for a long time, did uh, when the game released, uh, where basically he was like he was kind of talking about uh, Naughty Dog and crunch and conditions and whatever. But basically, what he said that I thought was like so fascinating and kind of a, a peek into how studios like this work is he's like Naughty Dog has such high standards and can be so awful to work for that they have essentially gone through every game animator that can work to their standards in the industry. Like, they they have run out of senior people, and so what they're doing is pulling those animators from film. They are getting, like, CGI VFX people, and he's like, they are really talented, the game looks great, but if this game had, like, game developers on it it would have been done a year and a half sooner you know which which i think is this kind of like fascinating picture and uh, when you when you read stuff about like uh the experience of being a new person at naughty dog people talk about like i do not know how to hit the quality standards that you are pushing for and in this it seems like they are hiring for people who can achieve a certain level of quality even if they do not understand the workflow of making a game, which is why, like, The Last of Us 2 took so long to make, uh, in addition to them uh, reworking plot points and doing all this sort of stuff. All right, just a, a thing that I've written about a few times. It's in the book. It's in the Polygon piece I wrote. Um, uh, and I really strongly encourage people, if you are interested in The Last of Us and its production, to go and listen to it. It is the official The Last of Us podcast. And is this, sorry, is this official about the game or the official TV? Because the TV show also had an official podcast, It's right? the same show. It's I, the same show. Oh, I think okay. it's all the same, yeah. Uh, and so it's like different seasons of the show. Um, and it's hosted. I forget who the host is. But, you know, it's uh, they did a bunch of interviews. They're edited together. It feels like a, you know, kind of a... Infra- it's a DVD special feature. You know, it's that kind of, of deal. Um, but if you listen to it critically and not just as a, wow, isn't it amazing that the game is, is made? It is full of just damning information 
um, about the thing that you're talking about. And, uh, you know, especially around crunch, um, there's a point, I think it's Druckmann who is talking, someone can listen to this if they want to, and I think he's talking about The Last of Us Part Two. Um, and he says uh, they're in a meeting and someone's pitching a really, really difficult feature. And everyone's kind of kicking it around the table. I, you know, I don't know if this is possible to do. Here's the reasons why. Blank, blank, blank. You know, Naughty Dog famously does not have producers. So you can imagine there's not an intermediary layer here of, of people trying to figure it out. Um, and it gets around the table and eventually someone says, well, look, we're Naughty Dog. Like, we, let's do, we're not, that's the thing. And, and he is telling this anecdote as a way of expressing this is the quality and the character of the studio, right? That Like, this is the thing. Um, uh, you know, we, we do this in places that others don't. But if you think about, like, the standing reserve of labor that you need to blanket say we're Naughty Dog, um, I think that becomes a really kind of horrifying statement. Um, and that, that Twitter thread that you're um, referencing, Jacob, you know, that's not the only time I've heard this um, and, and not even the oldest time that I had been told that. Um, and so I'm not shocked by it. But yeah, you, you need... You need an industry. The games industry is parasitic on lots of other things by its very nature is a combination of mini media. And so uh, to create itself as a medium Um, and, uh, you know, the like those other industries also have highly depressed labor uh, and their work is not treated as prestigiously. Right. Like if you can work on one single shot for a Marvel film or a Marvel TV show. Right. Which is kind of hierarchized very low in the prestige of the industry right um versus the last of us part two pretty easy to make that choice right um you know and i wonder if the the new the last of us project that multiplayer game with a story element whatever that actually is that that's been delayed a couple times i really wonder where it's hitting on that right you know is this a labor shortage issue is this a kind of post-covid problem um you know, I can imagine this being a, that being a spot where the rubber's hitting the road, the road for all of this. But sorry, Blake, I interrupted you. Well, I was going to say, I just think it's interesting some of the ways the uh, intense visual fidelity. And Jacob, I think we've talked about this off mic a couple times. Like how good the game looks actually works against it as a game. Oh, yeah. In terms of like navigating levels yeah you, you um, want that yellow paint to be everywhere i spent so much time and i i don't remember i guess i would have done this the first time i played it but i don't remember i spend so much time in this game looking for where the fuck do i go and it comes down to everything looks so good that the clear golden path is too obfuscated in a way that like uh other games would yeah put yellow paint everywhere or just like it would be easier to see because there's not four billion leaves on every tree and bush blocking the path. I, the thing I need to walk up to and press X to shimmy between or whatever. Um, it's it's weird that like the game is beautiful. Like there's sometimes I'm looking at this game and be like, damn, that's real life for real. I'm playing a movie. But also it comes at the cost of sometimes just being like, well, now I'm stuck in this arena after I've killed everyone for 10 minutes as I walk around like press like a fucking point and click adventure like pixel hunting the level i mean even even the gameplay itself you know i i felt so like annie really enjoyed watching me uh play this and you know talked about how it felt like she was watching a you know tv show or whatever but it's like the the resource collecting which is like a fundamental part of the gameplay is just hugging every wall of every room and like pressing x because like those those bottles of pills that are sometimes on the shelves like do not leap out at you uh because they are 
painted so realistically within the level that it's it, it is this weird thing where you have hyper realistic and like incredibly animated characters running into walls in that video game way because like you know there might be a part of a blade behind there and you want to find it because that's what the gameplay is telling you to do and it's especially towards the end when the narrative momentum is really pushing forward i had a hard time kind of figuring like should i I, my brain is still saying I need to look all over the place for resources here, you know, and, yeah. and that is such a slow and clunky process uh, because of the the just like complete focus on on making the game look uh, realistic and beautiful that they have. Well, speaking of beautiful sections of this game or uh, visually expensive sections of this game, Jacob, let's talk about this damn island. It's man, I. I don't remember, I, I, I think the first time I played this game, I had, you know, lots of thoughts on a lot of things. I took more notes about the island than, like, any other uh, individual section in this game. Because there's just so much fucking going on there. Like, story-wise, narratively, <coughs> I mean, the production is out of control uh, in, yeah. in both positive and negative ways. Um, I think, like... You'll probably have more than me to say on this. So just where I'm sitting with it is like, I understand what it's doing narratively to tie up some loose ends. I don't think it does it very well. It's just like, remember Isaac? He's dead now. Remember Yara? She's dead now. Um, here's the end of Lev's mom's plot. Lev and Yara's mom's plot line. Never met her, but we have to get this. Anyway, um, I like the gameplay of it. I think the arenas are huge and fun and it's as a man who likes expensive things on my TV, I like when the village is burning down. It's like, that looks fucking cool. I don't think this is necessary to the game. I think there is a way to not have this, and it's totally fine. I mean, my my take on it was almost... I mean, so I think this part of the game, when you were first playing it, truly feels like you have stumbled into an Uncharted game. You know, in, in like, I, I guess there's there are multiple parts of the island. There's more traditional, like, sneaking around, and, you know, you're shooting people with your crossbow, and it feels good. And that's all, like, fine. But I think the memorable parts are uh, you get on a horse, everything is burning down, you are shooting with a gun while horse riding, your, your like, things are crashing down behind you, and there is just this scale that is completely absurd compared to the rest of the game. You know, like, the biggest scenes in every other part of the game don't even hold a candle to, like, how much activity is happening all around you. And it feels like a scene from Uncharted 3. You know, like, it, it, it even there is even an escape the burning building thing that is, like, exactly a scene from Uncharted 3. And I think it is... Uh, in some ways, I like it just because it is so different and i think it is kind of it is and cameron i i want to talk to you about this because it feels like it is kind of the game doing its perspective on humanity most explicitly in that it is like this is hell like the 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 infection is completely absent from here it is just people killing people and in the like rugged individualism of kind of the game's protagonists you just start killing everyone from both sides because you know the factions are completely meaningless at this point they're both trying to kill you and and you just have to get out um and it i i don't know it it is both i think it is impressive in how uh in the scale that it's conveying like i think there is something that comes through in how big it is 
that would be lost if it was a smaller scene. But at the same time, uh, I, you know, I think I think this is the meeting the game on its own terms or not uh, question. Like, I find this section pretty unpleasant in just like its ultimate point is like god humans are so terrible look at them tear each other apart uh, yeah i don't I, it's hard to know what to do with it right because there is a um pitting up of like political allegiance against religious allegiance that goes on here right like if we imagine these factions as being kind of linear right what are they about right well the I, isaac's faction you know, the political hardcore, you, you, you know, like Abby's people are going to go away. Owen's going to leave and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so Isaac's faction are all about uh, killing them before they kill us. Like, it's a little unclear what the actual literal motivation here. The Seraphites are making maneuvers in the city. So then, therefore, they got to be eliminated, I guess. Right. Um, you know, big picture. And then the Seraphites, they have like this millenarian religious man maneuver right like you got to get rid of the old world usher in the new right and that's even evident in their uh, you know like uh the wooden construction and everything right they're 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 really leaning on the you know um when humans start over after and by they i mean naughty dog here right naughty dogs lean on the when humans start over we start over from the basics and that means you know kind of like leaning on this indigenous kind of iconography or whatever um, and so, you know, you really wonder when you put them, when you smash them into one another, is this meant to be, or is this kind of being pitched to us as these are two mutually incompatible worldviews that need to eliminate one another. And so that's where the criticism emerges, right? Like, is the game saying that these two things are both insufficient for a full human life? And so then therefore we have to find some mysterious third way. Now the game presents us with a third way that's like murdering those other two yep. factions. I don't know if that's the goal, right? But you know, the, the implicit uh, third faction here is Jackson, right? This like, um, you know, whatever, like pseudo ethno state that's like running around in the, the Midwest um, or, you know, the Western Midwest, I guess. Um, so it's a really confusing to know, like actually what is the point here? And I think really, truly the point is, uh, has nothing to do with these actual factions. It has nothing to do with characters as written. I think, Blake, it's exactly what you're saying, that all of the main characters in the game, due to like proper prestige storytelling, they need to have a character arc. And I think that this was understood to be the most efficient way to knot a bunch of those together and then resolve and them. Because it's The Last of Us, the resolution is kill most of them. That's all we've got, right? You know, the we'll get to the very end of the game, but the very end of the game doesn't even have the self-respect to be ashamed of itself, right? Like, there, there's a very oddness to it that that it commits to this bit that we're talking about all the way through. I, I do think, I do think that we, you know, the the very obvious read on it, but we should say is like game about cycles of violence, and we are seeing that, of course, it ends uh, in in everyone dying um i i also think the weird you know we've got like the the modern fascists versus the uh new religious sect or whatever there is also obviously the uh what we've been talking about throughout this whole series the kind of israeli politics of it where in many ways the seraphites are i i don't want to say the seraphites are the palestinians but it, it it certainly you know seems seems that way in a lot of their coding and it, again the kind of like complete nihilism of the message and um and, and the kind of like somewhat apathy of the cycle of violence theme is like 
they're just both gonna kill each other. You know, like, how horrible is it that, like, at the end of the day, they're all going to kill each other, which I think is a perspective that, uh, you know, ignores kind of the different weights that the factions have. You know, the fact that the WLF is, like, a fully functioning uh, fascist military organization and the WL or and the, the Seraphites live on an island, you know, and mostly keep them themselves is perhaps kind of an unconscious representation. But it's, like, it's hard to see it and be, like... I guess this is this is where we were going all along. This is where hate has brought us to. But I think that's kind of, you know, the, seeing two forces crash into each other is happening large here uh, when, of course, the story is is seeing those two forces in Abby and Ellie crash into each other. It's it's interesting, this section, and then considering, like, Jackson and Ellie and Dina, where they go after this, and, like, Abby... Uh, honestly, everyone, kind of, a lot of the central character's main goal is, like, in this Abby section, like, obviously such lengths are taken to, like, humanize the the fascists, you know, the WLFs, these military extremists. And the same grace is, like, not extended to the Seraphites. I mean, it's, like, you know, like, you get the moments of Lev explaining why their religion is important to him, and, like, that that's about it, but... There's also the dissonance of Abby going to the island with Yara and Abby just starts killing everyone. And it's like, narratively, I don't think Yara would be super on board with this, but she doesn't say anything about it. You just start murdering and she's like, damn, all right, cool stuff. Uh, and yet, like, the solution for all these people seems to just be to, like, leave their community and abandon that. You know, like, e even Abby and or Ellie and Dina leave Jackson, which ostensibly is, like... Granted, it has, like, there's bigotry there, uh, but it's, like, you have to imagine to some degree in this post-apocalyptic world in the fiction safer than this ranch home where they just have some barbed wire and a fence, which I think is, you know, saying a lot in uh, beyond the narrative of the game. But also, like, Owen's thing is, like, let me abandon my community. Then Abby's, like, let me abandon my community. Everyone is, like, what if we left everything and moved away from it? And I don't understand, like, why that seems to be the central solution of the game for everyone. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I, I think it's entirely, I, I think it is working backward from plot necessity, like really and truly. I, I don't, it doesn't read to me because the way it all folds back together, and, and I guess we're going to work our way to this, right? But it works its way to this like completely buffoonish coda, right? Of like, no one learned anything. No one learned a single damn thing about anything and more importantly, no one learned anything from the last 20 hours of gameplay, and there's worse people out there than even these other people, right? Like, you have to create, like, in a world where humans have free will, there's got to be Satan, right? Like, there has to be this, like, almost universal, you know, uh, uh, you know, because uh, are they actually positioned as white nationalists, or are they just preppers? You know, big quotation uh, No, they're, uh, sorry, they're the evil greasers. That's... <laughs> They, they are, in fact, evil greasers. Uh, but, right, like, there's something about that to it, too, right? That, it, like, everything you just said about the kind of complexity of, of lived life uh, that these characters theoretically have, right? You know, why would it be okay for you to kill uh, Yara's next-door neighbor, right? Like, it, with no kind of repercussion. Well, that's because the plot's got to, like, get us to this Gordian knot that we can just cut really easily and then get to that, that boss battle. It does not feel to me like it has worked backward from... What do these things mean? It really feels like it is 
these are characters and we have drawn some like Kurt Vonnegut ass, you know, like string charts on the wall and we figured out where they are crossing to give some, um, you know, HBO 10 episodes miniseries um, qualities to them, right? Like it's all downstream from Prestige TV it's, to me. It's so strange. I don't know if I'm just like reading too far into it at this point, but like obviously I think you have to decouple like, uh, you know, Isaac and these are like people who kill and blah, 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 blah. But like Abby's community in the Seahawks stadium, like if you forget the part of the game where everyone is a violent psychopath, like it seems like the best bet you have in this world. Like you get to see it and it's like there are farms. Everyone has their own apartments and press boxes. Like it is a functioning, pleasant society that I don't understand. Like when you decouple that just from like the Isaac shit going on, like why this game is so obsessed with people leaving the safety they have, you know? I feel like it's, it, it, it is, it is ironic in, how many how many mechanical ways the game kind of tries to uh give personhood to the people you're fighting you know that they they animate realistically and they yell each other's names and they die horribly like a real person would but ultimately like the game is so concerned with its like six major characters that kind of no one is allowed to exist outside of that like i think i think the the point of the abby story is like we only have each other and it's not you know like it's uh, those those lines can't be defined by the factions we're a part of we just need to you know care for each other because that's that's what we do but it's like for that point to be expressed the game has to show abby killing a whole bunch of wlf and it has to show lev killing seraphites and it has to show yara you know killing people it just kind of like it it removes their ability to have anyone except for the main characters in the game because those are the only people who kind of like have personalities and legacies that matter it also seems coded in the idea of like you know when people left all the cities and moved to the suburbs because the the idea that it was safer. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, and we've we've talked about Yusuf's piece. Yeah, but I, we should talk about it again. Well, and the, like the Jane Jacobs, I'm reading one of her books right now, and she talks about the lack of eyes in you know like bi- how many eyes you have in a busy city versus the suburbs or like these gated communities they build in cities. And it's like, well, actually, the busy part is technically safer because more people are watching. And this game is obsessed with this idea of like got to get out of the dangerous city you know yep. and it's like what about your home was actually dangerous abby granted you lived a dangerous life because you chose to be a part of the army and that's its own troubling thing but it's like your life could have been very safe but instead your solution is like i just got to get away to and then where you land is ultimately way worse for you immediately because it's like there's no safety net there. Well, yeah, there's like a very weird. Uh, the game, you know, kind of eats itself in some ways because it begins with the exact opposite of what you were just talking about, Jacob. Right? Which is like, did you know actually that all the characters who didn't have names in the first game they had families? Right. That doctor had a family. Right. Like it. It. The narrative seed of the second game is in fact all these people that seemingly don't matter matter a whole lot. Like, in fact, they matter so much they're going to kill your dude, right? They're going to kill they're going to come kill your dad, right? Like, you, you know, the the ultimate gamer dad. They're going to, you know, uh, hit him with the ultimate dad tool, the golf club. <laughs> that's uh, God, the brutal irony. Uh, yeah, they're they're, you know, that that's the naughty dog touch. But so it begins from that place, right? But I think you're exactly right and uh there there's I think there's something going on here with 
the only way the games can imagine being yourself, going back to some of the stuff you've been talking about, like the only way the game can imagine, it's not just even rugged individualism, right? It's action in the world. And the, the, the lexicon of actions in this are hitting the triangle button to interact with literally anything and everything, depending on a, a, a context-dependent thing, or using the other 13 buttons on the controller to murder people, right? Like, those are the two mechanisms. Uh, as far as I can remember, you can't even melee through a window, right? You oh, have to no, shoot you, a window you can. out? You can? You can, can, you you can like punch a window a, out, yeah. Okay, good, good. I just couldn't, I was like, oh, I was playing earlier today, and I was like, maybe can I only throw a brick through? Um, so, you know, there there's a... The, the game sets itself up to think through these things pretty intently and then just completely abandons it, um, it for reasons that are mysterious to me. And again, I think because uh, supposedly character driving the plot, but it forgets about character in pursuit of set piece, right? In pursuit of uncharted thrill. Um, and then when it's that, it, when that is driving the bus, everything else becomes secondary to it. I think ultimately, I still really like this game. I'm, I'm going to take it to my grave. I think this section specifically is where like a lot of this shit starts really coming to a head for me. And I have a lot of problems. Like sometimes it's not even thematically. Sometimes it's just like narratively it's messy. Like why does Abby kill so many Seraphites in front of Yara and she say nothing like for a game that is, uh, must have 800 pages of incidental dialogue while you're walking from A to B. It's very strange to me that in this back section that is not commented upon at all. And I think, like, these are probably, realistically, these are problems throughout the entire game that was probably easier for me to just overlook. But there's, like, so much of it stacks up here that I'm like, you're starting to, the game is too big and you're starting to not be able to keep it coherent. Like, you have created something too massive for you to be able to write through it. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, a very strange part at the end of this, which is um, the kind of boss fight to culminate this section is is this this melee fight where Abby is fighting uh, a huge Seraphite guy, and and it is uh, it is essentially a preview of the final fight that we're going to have between uh, Ellie and Abby, but it is it it is fully Naughty Dog showing off their gore system where like. Ellie, you know, or Abby, excuse me, hooks a, a scythe or whatever she's holding in the guy's mouth and tears it open, and he is he is jokerified and and keeps kind of fighting uh, past past the point of you know all kind of logic and rationality. And I think my guess is that the the idea with this boss fight is to really be like. The most obvious humans zombies story thing, which is like humans are the real monsters in that like this this character who is ostensibly not infected plays almost exactly the same as like a bloater boss fight or whatever that it is just this knockdown drag out fight. I think it is way too uh too much it just feels not in the like it's so over the top that it kind of breaks the seriousness of the game and it is also. Another example of, um, in a slightly different way than it treats its other black characters, the idea of this being like, the human has been completely transformed into an unthinking monster to be like a huge black guy is, I think, the game just being very careless with its kind of uh, racial theming once again. Yeah, I'm very curious about where this entered into the 
into the game, right? Like, was was this always planned? Like, oh, it's the end of a big segment. We got to have a big boss fight, right? You know, or was this a... Because it, it's out, it comes out of nowhere, truly. It doesn't feel, and it breaks the pacing of the segment because there is more escape stuff that happens right after that or getting to the boat, right? there, It feels like it is a, let's pre- pre- press pause, go do this other, like, racially weird thing, and then come back. Um, and I do wonder, like, I think, you know... I'm on the same page as you, Blake. Like, I am very positive on the game up until basically the island, and then I think, like, it hits a brick wall. I think the last six hours of this game are uh, are uh, very bad. Um, but but I do wonder if, I, if this boss battle weren't here, I think I would be more positive on the island because it would be a theoretically stealth and story and we went to this place and we saw people completing a different conflict that we are not involved in and then we made it out and isn't this horrible right like it would turn abby into a witness more than a uh active combatant right and i I think it would be even better to have it be a no kill set of you know levels right or at least pieces of it right like i think that would have changed the gameplay in a sufficient way I can also imagine some playtesters going, running into that and there being a lot of friction, right? Like, why is the toolkit that I've developed 20 hours of expertise in, why is it not helpful here? Um, and why did I do all this and not have a big cool fight at the end? Um, uh, and so I, it, that really, to me, is a place where what it is trying to do as a kind of prestige entertainment product just runs straight into the fact that this is the studio that makes Uncharted games, you know? Um, and there is a, there's a line from Jonathan Cooper where he talks about it. He's like, these Sony AAA games just have the pockets to fund infinite delays and infinite player testing. And, like, that is kind of how they turn out so good. Like, that's how you get the 10 out of 10 God of Wars and whatever. And so it is... It feels very real to uh, think about them being like, well, what was what was like the the finale of the island? Uh, and then them being like, we got to put a boss here. We also haven't talked about the fact that this game had like huge rewrites because they didn't specifically say it, but they essentially said like uh, parts of the narrative weren't resounding with players. And they said they weren't fond of characters the writers hoped would be likable. Um, which is a a wild thing to hear given the reception of this game. But, it, like, the idea of it being delayed years because the characters weren't resounding with the players enough, and I really am very curious what that would have looked like, you know, if if they needed to flesh out Abby way more, or if they needed to give Ellie more, I you know, I assume it was Abby, but maybe that's just because I'm reacting to the way that people have talked about this game for the past three years. Uh, listeners, please send us your... Um... Uh, your tier list for likability for the characters in the game. Like, we, we, you know, we're curious. Oh, we've already done one, but Blake has already <laughs> listed them all. <laughs> you got Abby, Lev, <laughs> Owen. Sorry, plot twist there. I love Owen. He's Ooh. such a he's such Ooh. a fun Beavis and Butthead character. Yara, uh, right? Oh, Yara. Uh, Yara is nothing. Yeah, we don't even talk about what happened yeah, to Yara. Yara right? is truly nothing in this game, and that's you learn that when they kill her, and then no one even stops to mourn her. I mean, Lev is like, oh, no, but that's about it. No, but it is so, it's like, you know, mourning is a long process, but Lev doesn't even get to show grief. You know, it's like when, when Abby shows up and she finds Owen and Mel dead, she gets to have, I have written down, ask Blake about puke. Uh, which is something that I want to talk yes, about. Sir. But, yes, sir. Uh, but it's like, Lev, we we barely get to see React to the death of Yara. And also, 
Annie looked at her phone for one second and looked back up and was like, wait, Yara's dead? Yeah. And who was like, yeah, that's, yeah, that is how fast it happened. Yara is nothing in this game. And it's unfortunate because it seems like there is an interesting relationship to explore between Yara and Lev and then the introduction of Abby to Yara and Lev. But instead, it's like Yara's got to get her arm cut off, so she's going to be gone for a while. And then when you finally get to hang out with her, you murder everyone she's ever known. And she's just like, chill, cool with me. And then uh, she dies. As like, she's, she's nothing. So she's unfortunately not on the tier list, but she had the potential to be there. Uh, Dina actually is number one. Then Abby, Lev, Owen. That's how it goes. We got the S tier, A tier. Uh, okay. Um, so we escape from the island, uh, rowing in a boat away. Something to be said about the use of boats in this game, maybe. Uh, I was always struck by the just the idea of the main menu being a boat uh, is weird. And I also always just think about God of War 2018 and being like, I guess Sony's thing is boats. They're big yeah. AAA And they've thing. never been fun. They did, yeah. <laughs> They're so not fun. <laughs> yeah. They did user testing in 2016 and people said, we want boats. We need uh, boats. In the same way that they said, we want Vikings back then. And... It was the next decade of our lives. We are still living out the consequences. 2016 was a great year for boats, though. We all remember. Huge year. Was it? Big boat. Nah, year. I'm just kind of saying shit. Oh, I was <laughs> I was thinking of the... Uh, I, I briefly thought the Suez Canal thing. I was like, that couldn't have happened <laughs> no, in 2016. No, 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 no. no, that happened a year and a half ago. Um, okay, so uh, we, we finally... We get back to the aquarium. I was I was thinking, thank God they didn't make me like fight infected between these moments. You know, yep. the small mercies of the game just letting the cutscenes happen in a row. Is it weird um, when Abby gets back to the aquarium that she doesn't try to find a normal way into her lover's house and she just breaks a bunch of windows? That's look, we got a button for break window. We gotta use it. <laughs> she just starts destroying right. windows, and I'm like, all right, I guess that's how we do it. Uh, God, imagine how hard replacing a window would be in the apocalypse. You couldn't. It'd be That'd fucking be nightmare. You could never do it. I mean, you would be, it's like being a cobbler in the post-apocalypse, right? Like you have become, so if you're a glazier, you're the most powerful <laughs> person on the planet, right? Uh, if you can repair a shoe and you can repair a window, you, you're employed the rest of your life. You have a guild now. You know what I mean? Like, uh, start jump-starting your own economy. Is it weird that in the 20 years since The Last of Us, apocalypse happened? Not since the game was mm -hmm. released. Nobody, nobody like panic. It's only been 10 years. The games have never explored much of people creating their own shit. It's still like... Well, we talked about this last time. They have no culture. Ellie is like, <laughs> I was born in the wrong time. Yeah. It was like, I guess, because no one has made art in the past 20 years. Yeah, it's very weird that it's like, they're still just wearing... I mean, the Seraphites maybe are different in this case, but like, it's weird that it's like, everyone's just like... Oh, we'll just go find some clothes. Allie just wears chucks and jeans. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like one day all that will be gone or uh, rotten, something rotten on your feet. Uh, it's weird that they've never been like, oh, we uh, we sew our own clothes here in the Last of Us world. Nevertheless. They make beef jerky. What more do you want? That's explicitly stated more than one time Is in the it? game. That yes, that that they there's a joke that happens early. Uh, that's like uh, when Ellie first got to Jackson, she was stealing beef jerky because she was like, you know, so like, what if we have to leave? Whatever, right? And she, like that is the first moment that I can think of in the game where like no one's making cowboy hats. Yeah. They've got they have horses and cattle, right? Don't we? Don't maybe we don't see cattle? But they also they would have they cattle. have bars in Jackson, so they must be brewing right. beer. So, like, did they make That's the right. equipment? That's the only we thing see, they make. We see a guy growing weed. 
you we know, do that's see something, yeah. right? But he's um, the only guy. He's yeah. the weed guy <laughs> for the whole world. I think. I think it it speaks to kind of kind of the prepper fantasy, uh, where it's like, hey, we got uh, one million rounds of ammunition, and we know how to make beef jerky. That's all you need to know for the apocalypse. Don't need to know how to filter water or like mend a hole in your jeans. <laughs> if you can make beef jerky and shoot a gun, you'll be fine. Or learn to make guitar strings. Why do you have to go into an infected zone to find a 30-year-old pair of guitar strings? Like, couldn't you just learn to make some nylon strings or some shit? Like, there's no ingenuity in this world. There is just rely on old shit, point, shoot. That's the whole thing. There's plenty of ingenuity. I mean, this is this is also like the, you know, the terrible heart of the game revealing itself. There's plenty of ingenuity if you want to make a silencer for a gun oh, or if you want to service your weapon, <laughs> right? Like you they're, can make they're the actually, Max Payne 3 silencer. Right. There like actually is a pretty robust imaginary for like being scrappy and scroungy and building your own stuff. It's just shit that's like, you know... Uh, a proximity bomb. <laughs> right. It's just like things that are truly horrifying to imagine, right? Like, just learn how to build a big fence, right? I mean, I guess Jackson does know how to do that. They they do have the But it fence. seems like no one builds new houses. They just live in old houses? Oh, of course not. No, only yeah. old houses. Yeah. It's so... Sh- it's just... Well, except for, except for the Seraphites. They've they've got... Uh, they have, you know, lean-tos. That's and true. Um, okay. So we uh, we get we get to the uh, the aquarium. Uh, those people are dead. Blake, you mentioned in uh, the previous episode how like Abby's plotline is so disconnected from Ellie, and basically the events that are going on in the world are so disparate. And I do think that it's actually fairly effective to have Abby escape this hell, enormous military operation, and she comes back and like for a completely different and and you know uncontrollable reason two people that she cares about are just dead you know and it, and it it really it highlights the cruelty of what Ellie is doing which is like completely removed from anything else Ellie is just going around like killing the people that Abby cares about uh and it uh, I don't know it sucks to watch and uh Abby barfs like you said something about the last of us barf like early in the series it's the greatest video game barf of all time no vomit has ever looked as good as this vomit does this vomit probably costs six hundred thousand dollars it's unbelievable the dog artist just looking at pictures of vomit for weeks on end dude it's unbelievable like it's such a specific vomit too because abby probably doesn't have much in her stomach so it's not like pea green exorcist vomit it's like just a watery quick vomit like so much thought went into this puke and every time i see it i'm like that's crazy that they put that much into this puke i love it it's my favorite moment of the damn game (laughs) friend of the show vomit one one thing that i i uh i noticed on this that i did not really think much of last time is how how tremendously sad it is that uh abby is there mourning her two friends and lev picks up the map that ellie has been using to kill everyone and it's like, hey, looks like she's here. And it is, you know, I imagine an intentional, like, roping of Lev into the quote-unquote cycle of violence. But it is, the game also seems like it wants Lev to be kind of the one hope for the future. And it is just, like, so awful that he's like, hey, Abby, do you want to go kill the people who killed these people? Because I know where they are. I found this map. Let's go. Also, it's dumb that the map's there. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, how many things has Ellie done and not dropped this yeah. map? You know, and not not disposed of this map? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, it is a uh, pure, pure contrivance. So we go back to the theater. 
uh, we see the same, uh, same, same scene from another perspective. It is pretty, uh, wild how long we have gone without seeing ellie just in terms of kind of like story construction that when you start hearing like ashley johnson deliver lines again you're just like oh yeah i was with her for 15 hours um and you do this i don't know what uh cameron what do you feel about this this boss fight where you are abby and you fight ellie and ellie is kind of doing like the things she does when you play as ellie i think that's like uh, you know when they pitched this in the room, everyone was like, "Oh yeah!" To me, it feels like uh, playing. You know, because for I didn't, I didn't uh, replay the end of this game for the thing. I watched like a very nice long play for it, but I did play like the first ten or twelve hours of the game. Um, and so watching it was really interesting. And then looking back at my notes from when I had like a review copy of the game, that was interesting to go back and compare. Like, how did I feel in the moment of playing it? Um, you know it. There's two ways to do this. There's the the way that they chose to do it, which is a little bit of a looser version of it. Because there's a lot of ways to kind of like cheese this, right? You know, you can like just smash her in the face with a brick from around the, you know, around the corner and kind of rush her. That's one way of initiating these because they are very much come into contact, trigger the next part of the fight, right? You know, it's, it's yep. very... It's, it, I mean, it's just a three-phase... It's almost the same as the David fight in The Last of Us 1, except uh, Ellie's a little more active while you're fighting um, her. And I was thinking, you know, like, what are other ways of, of doing this? Um, and I was thinking, you know, the Mr. Freeze fight from Batman Arkham Asylum, right? Which has you going around and you have to, like, you know, interact with these eight or different... Eight or so hot spots that do different things to him and you have to interact with it. And I think this is the more linear, more friendly version of doing that. But I, I did wish it was a little bit more of not just you're doing to her what she does to other people, which is not like is, I guess, fun in the moment to do and to like uh, experience. But like, I don't know that like this would never rank for me highly above like other versions of this or other kind of like boss battles in games because there's not having to think outside of the relationship, right? It's just like go do the thing that you've been doing before and hear the lines from the other side. And so on one hand, it's like such a brilliant idea, but I think there's a lot of like cool stuff that's squandered here. Um, I, I Yeah, I don't know. I can see where the ceiling is and it's not here. Uh, you know. Would you? How would you feel about this boss fight? Uh, I ain't got anything smart to say about it. I think it sucks and it's not fun. I put <laughs> this fight on easy, got through it, then put the game back up to normal. I have always hated this moment. It feels gamey and unfair in a way that is just like very goofy to me. Um, I also think the animations of Ellie look fucking stupid. <laughs> She's running around crouched like a little goblin the whole time. It, well, it, it is yes. it is totally that thing of when you see when you are playing a first person mm. game and then someone like hacks <laughs> a camera in third yeah. person and you see what they look like crouch <laughs> running and it's like, oh no, we weren't supposed to see this. The, the gamey part of it just to follow up on that really quick is uh, it gets so much worse I guess in the second stage where you go into the loudest room. The, you literally go to the, the china shop, right? Where it's like chains dangling from the ceiling there's it's, it's the cans, new Garador right? fight in Resident Evil 4. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's exactly that. Right. Yeah, I, uh, I I hate it. I think it sucks so much. I agree, Cameron, that I think it is... Uh, when they stumbled upon this idea, it must have felt very cool. You know, and it's like, hey, she uses the traps that you've used in the past. And so it's like, ah, she's got her old tools. But it, it it's just... It is, it is essentially a quick time event 
made into a place where I like accidentally game over it a bunch of times by walking into a mine, which, uh, whatever. Um, but, uh, the fight ends, there is a, a just wild, uh, series of violent acts that happen on screen where i mean it's like this is this is the kind of the the fact that uh everyone walks away and is like basically fine from this fight physically when they have been arms broken stabbed with like rusty knives all of this stuff uh it's it's very horrible there's a part where um gosh what is the sequence it is ellie ellie is killing or abby is killing ellie dina runs out grabs abby uh lev shoots someone uh who does lev shoot lev shoots dina um abby smashes dina's face into the ground in i think the single most upsetting uh instance of violence in the game and it is i almost say that positively i mean this is you know this is the something rotten thing it is like even after a game full of violence seeing that happen is so awful and just for some reason feels outside the scope of the violence that the game has been doing uh, otherwise that it is I think they're trying to sell how horrible the fight is and it does in that you are just screaming stop 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 uh by the end of it uh Abby almost kills Dina um uh, Ellie says she's pregnant Abby says good and then uh Lev stops her from uh killing Dina there there's a lot it's a it's a very rapid sequence of events that does kind of feel like their ultimate confluence of uh all all of these people's legacies of violence coming together at the same time um and then the game doesn't end there if it had would it like it would this be a satisfying ending of abby saying you know never let me see you again and walking out the door like would that be better or would we be left it still doesn't really express a character arc for people i i think you end it with the next scene abby or not not abby but uh gina and ellie at the farmstead got the baby uh we do some good old-fashioned red dead first red dead redemption like you got what you wanted right? Like everything's good. You know, you didn't get the, the final, uh, you know, kill that you wanted there, but now you have a domestic life and you were left with the repercussions of your actions, right? Like cut in on her face, get, give us the, actually just give us, have her fingers cut off here, right? In a knife fight, give us the actual final shot of the game. Game ends here is infinitely better. I really and truly believe that. I think, I think it could end at the farmstead and that would be good. I also think there's a way to end it in Santa Barbara, without the ellie abby fight like still get them together and then just we'll talk about it when we get there but like don't do the fight um i think that's also an ending that would be better than ending with a tekken 8 you know uh 1v1 that we get but i i think you mean uh the end of metal gear solid 4 yeah i guess yeah, yeah, yeah i wrote that down <laughs> noah right. caldwell gervais uh specifically yeah. references in this video oh really that's yeah of, in, injecting each other with uh adrenaline yeah. so they can keep fighting I, uh, I do think though ending at the scene we're talking about would not be the right call um i think there's there are definitely other ways it should have ended but mm-hmm. not here yeah yeah you need a cap on it and you know, I I don't think there's a way, like, truly, and the game never figures it out either. There's no actual way to end Abby's arc, right? Like, 
the the game never figures out how to do that. The ending that we have is literally she just wanders off screen, right? Like, um, and so it's not as if that there's not, that's not even a pretense in this game that you should do it. If there is an ending of it, it's what the start menu looks like after you complete the game, right? That's the best gesture we have. Which which I <laughs> that start menu makes me more emotional than like many other aspects of the ending. Like <laughs> I think that menu is very effective. Um. But yeah, so so we have I don't know. It is it is very finale esque this moment. It does very much seem like it is what the entire game has been uh, building to. Um, and then uh, then we go into this this farm section, um, which is I think I think a very good way of talking about it is the um, is the John Marston on the farm, uh, you know, herding sheep, doing his shit. Um, I think it very intentionally feels fake, just just like in in like a constructed sense. Like that sunset, the first time you're out there, is just so like impossibly beautiful. And I mean that in like a it it just it just seems like a hallucination. And I think we're supposed to feel like it's a hallucination. Um, and it kind of gets back to Naughty Dog style writing where they're having fun they're dancing together um uh they have a baby it's like jesse and dina's baby um and then and then there are some uh some trauma flashbacks uh blake do the i guess how do you like this section as a whole and do the flashbacks like work for you yeah um i do like this section though we'll talk about why when we get to tommy's return um the flashbacks i think are interesting um not the least of which is just mechanically how they work. Uh, I'm not a game developer, and I wouldn't presume to be one. But uh, the cutscenes in this game are in-engine, running in real time. And they are able to do like quick-second flashes of a moment in the game that does not take place here. Which I find yeah. just technically unbelievable. Like, literally, I know uh, a, a, uh, the billionth of a percent about how to make a game. And even I look at this and I'm like, how the fuck did they do that? That you can flash Joel's face on screen and it all be running in real time. I know that's not really answering your question, but every time I see it, I am taken by it. No, but I wrote down, I wrote down the same thing. And Naughty Dog has talked like weirdly a lot about how like new generations mean they don't have to do that split second cut to black before cutscenes start. And sometimes it feels kind of silly. Like, Hey, that's like that's what you're so concerned about, you know, this like millisecond of black. But in a scene like this, it really matters. So, you know, like if if that happened when when like the rake falls over and and Ellie sees Joel's face, I don't think it would be as effective. Um and also that they then set up like there's another scene where a broom falls over and you like tense up because you're expecting it and it doesn't happen, which I do think is another very good putting you in the head of ellie moment um cameron uh do the it, in in your version of the ending of the game i assume these still exist in some yeah. way yeah i i just don't like uh fundamentally the game for both characters does not really resolve any of this right it is it is resolved in well i guess all this happened right and like maybe we've learned a lesson about it maybe we haven't i don't know um, but it doesn't, there's no neat closure for the actual end of the game. And I think you can have a very unneat closure, but even, even better, I think that this will be with Ellie. She will now live a fairly normal life, theoretically, if there's no part three, right? 
she will live a, a theoretically normal life that will be haunted every moment by all the things that we did as players, right? That we like got some thrills on. And that's, I think, a common theme amongst some of the the something rotten games too, right? That, you know, there's this little bit of like, uh, you naughty boys, right? Playing these games, right? You know, that's a that's not a thing that was unique to Spec Ops, right? Especially in that, that generation of games, even though I think our public memory of that is such. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> that, that was the only game that ever inspected violence. Right, right. Or even like, you know, did some wink, wink, you know, not nudge, nudge about it. But the, uh, yeah, so I think you can do it. I think you can have all of that. I, I you know, I think, I think what comes next is, I don't know, maybe this is a playtest thing and they needed a big final fight that went the other way, right? Like maybe players really felt that Ellie is the core of the game and needs to one up the other person. Maybe that's it. Maybe it is just so crass and simple as that. Um, I, I think the other thing is that, that there's a positive, a really positive ambiguity that is here that I think would probably rub people the wrong way. And what we get at the end of the game is a very negative ambiguity, but one uh, under which someone gets to cry in close up. And so then therefore, you know, like we've had our moment of, wow, didn't we see the, you know, what hath man wrought? Wow. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very negative on that final scene, but, uh, but yeah, I think so. I think all this would still be in there. I think it would work even better. Just, you know, go with the no fingers thing, keep the guitar playing. There's a gap in your life. I mean, it's, it's the most heavy handed metaphor to be hit in the head with, but we're playing the last of us, right? Like that's not, <laughs> that's not out of bounds. Um, I, I know Blake, I want to let you talk about Tommy. I just want to, uh, just before that, uh, speaking of heavy handed, uh, I want to mention Andrew Wyeth here because, uh, my God, this entire scene, like the whole environment is constructed to essentially look like Christina's world, the painting by Andrew Wyeth, which is, uh, I, I'm sure listeners, you have seen it. It is a, a woman kind of, uh, laying at the foot of a hill looking up towards a farmhouse. There's, like, wheat in it. Um, if you go to the uh, Christina's World Wikipedia page, The Last of Us 2 is one of, like, three media things that it references. It's, like, it also inspired a final level of The Last of Us 2, um, which is a, a, a fascinating painting that I don't want to divert too much time to but like the the very the very short version of it is uh andrew wyeth was friends with this woman the the titular christina um who uh had like a degenerative disease where she was uh essentially paralyzed from the waist down or like did not have uh control of her legs um and also refused to use a wheelchair and so would just kind of crawl places um and so I think in in some ways the Wyeth version of this painting is like oh wow look at look at like her agency she's this is her world she's looking up at her farm but the picture is so kind of uh, melancholy and and gray that I think a lot of people see it and and feel this sense of like yearning and and kind of like a world apart you know that like you're not able to reach or whatever and I assume that is basically what the Last of Us usage of this is going for is that kind of like sense of yearning it is also just like a indelible piece of americana you know like it is one of the most famous paintings of the past 200 years or whatever and and this scene seems so invested in making this scene be the kind of prototypical american dream circa 
like the 1800s, you know, of, of owning your own land and, and being able to subsistence farm and, and not being reliant on anyone. Um, it, it is, it is very heavy handed, but I, I do think just visually it works for me just because I do find that painting so beautiful that I think it's, uh, it's interesting that they're paralleling it. Um, Blake, talk about Tommy. So you live in your, your great life, but with PTSD. Uh, but Tommy shows up and he's, uh, I guess up to this point, you would have thought he was actually dead. So it's kind of a, yeah, he mm-hmm, gets mm-hmm. shot in the yeah. head in that cut bit scene. of a surprise moment here. Uh, Tommy shows up. He is clearly not the same. I mean, physically he is, you know, uh, disabled, uh, blind in one eye. Um, he, Marie and Maria, Marie, him and his, I think just Maria. Maria. Yeah, Maria and oh. him had, sp- have split up, um, Tommy says it's a mutual thing, but you can hear in his voice it clearly was not. And uh, the game leads us to believe it is because of the very reason he has showed up here, which is uh, he's not been able to let Abby go. And I think slightly different than Ellie up to this point, he is still hell-bent on revenge. I think, I don't know, at least it's not explicit to this point that Ellie still wants to go out there. She will obviously change her mind and will go out there, but like... Tommy shows up and he's like, hey, I've talked to someone. They traded with Abby. She's here in Southern California. And Ellie's like, nah, dude, I got a life. I left the city. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, I can't do this. Dina explodes on him. And Tommy's like, well, I'm too fucked up. Like, I can't go. I can't do this. Basically, you know, like, in a very uncare. And what I think is, like, I do like the character of Tommy a lot. I think this moment is so heartbreaking to see how cruel he is to Ellie, how much his life has fallen apart because of this. I mean, like, just the the line delivery and his physical appearance at this point is so... I mean, it is... It's kind of like one of the few, like, he's Joel's brother moments Mm -hmm. that we get. That it's like Joel is so bitter and violent so often in the story. And we don't really see Tommy do that that much. But, like, here it is. But we hear it. We hear hear Tommy can be that way, right? Like, they talk early in the game about how Tommy is just as bad as Joel was. And, um... I think he's a torturer. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's the context that comes up in. Oh, I didn't know that Tommy could do something like yep. this. Well, him and Joel did a lot of things before, yep. you know. I think I think this is a really effective, heartbreaking scene, and it leads to what I think is, like, thematically the most resonant parts of this game for me. And we've talked about, like, um, the way, re- I mean, revenge media in general just lends itself to being viewed through... Um, the lens of addiction, whether it's intentional or not, it's just so easy to view revenge stories that way. And I think this game, especially right here, like obviously Ellie is, we talked about the way she's still going out day after day in Seattle, even though it is like having a profoundly negative effect on her um, in the way like addicts do, speaking from experience, I'm in recovery four years as of a week and a half from now. Um this is the scene of a profound relapse that is like shocking and like very well done. I I think like, even though I can't say on good authority, whether or not it it was written with any thought to addiction at all, I think like it lands the beat so hard when Tommy imprints this in her mind. And Ellie ultimately is like, I am going to give up everything for this to go back out. I'm going to, you know, there's a, there's a another heartbreaking scene between her and Dina in the kitchen as Ellie has woken up. She's gotten dressed. She's like, I'm going back out there. And Dina's like, 
how could you do this? Like, we have a family. If you leave, you are not coming back to me. Well, first off, she's like, I don't know if you'll even return. And if you do come back, you're not coming back to me. And Ellie's like, all right, I'm out. And I mean, that is like, that's relapse, man. That is, that is things any person who has has struggled or is struggling with addiction and has has or had loved ones in their life have like dealt with that have dealt with the willing choice to abandon loved ones for in the addict's case a doc in this case (laughs) brutal murder (laughs) but you know that's just how video games communicate um and you have had i can't speak too much to this specific case but like People also have enablers like Tommy in their life that will up into that for their own uh, selfish gain, which is what Tommy's doing here. Um, I, I never really encountered that. Luckily, I had a really good support system of even people who still did drink, did not try to get me to drink. But nevertheless, um, that I think I think like it, it, it makes this moment and the Santa Barbara section, which is like seen through this lens, just ellie going through the depths of the relapse the rock bottom beyond rock bottom like really strong for me and i really really love them and it doesn't necessarily overwrite a lot of my issues with uh the back back part of this game we've been talking about but like i think that resonates with me in a way that is like so specific and personal that i just like fuck with it so hard um no it's it's really like I I think I a lot of a lot of the problems I had with this game the first time I played through were due to uh pacing and not knowing where the story was going and feeling like I was almost done and not being done and a lot of those uh are were not as much an issue this time just because I knew I still have 6 hours till the ending or whatever but but this reading of it specifically Blake uh I I really uh I found really it, like it affected how I viewed the ending just in that like this is this is the part where i think most normal people are going to be angriest at ellie you know like playing the game you know and 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 i don't say normal uh in in regards to not you i mean right. people on the internet yeah. who never lose faith in ellie yeah. whatever uh but like uh, you know, I, I mentioned uh, Annie hollering when she learned that there were three hours uh, left of the game. She was also like yelling at the screen at this moment, which I think is kind of the reaction, you know, of just like what are it is so obvious that the choice is to not do this. You know, like I really don't think there's supposed to be any doubt in your mind that like maybe Ellie is right to like go and keep pursuing Abby. I think I think the game wants us to be like, nope, wrong decision. And trying to kind of figure out how I felt about Ellie just making the wrong decision without this frame I just found much more challenging and I and I do think that like viewing it through the lens of of you know like addiction and and obviously trauma but like feeling like this will be the thing that fixes me I think is kind of like unsaid in in Ellie's choice there and like I do think that is a very sad and very uh, effective beat. But the first time I played this game, I was more on the side of just like, I can't believe this is still fucking happening, you know, (laughs) which I think also uh, viewed from the lens of people who haven't experienced addiction is like probably, you know, it's like it's very easy to be unsympathetic in those moments. And, and you know, like, I'm I'm not going to sit here and in good faith say this game is not about cycles of violence 
blah, blah, blah. Because it is. But I think, like, where I push back is, like, when people seem to think it's only about that. And I can't say, like, Neil Druckmann and Haley Gross were like, hey, do you have any addicts in your life? Or are you in recovery? Let's use those direct experiences. But I think, like, the way it lends itself to that reading, there is more going on to this story than I think just, like, violence is bad. And I kind of hate that that often, like, critically, the game is boiled down to just that. Because I think, like, one of the big questions it also asks is not just, is violence bad, is who deserves revenge? Who earns it, you know? Um, and the game seems to, I guess, think Abby. But um, I think, like, that's one of the things that makes the game's storytelling, like, kind of powerful at some moments, especially in this farmstead section where it's like, fuck. Like, it hit me. That set, that. That scene with Dina and Ellie in the kitchen fucking gets me every time. Um, it rocks. You know, I think that I think both things are true, right? Like, I think that uh, part of it, I think, why that resonates so well, and I read it the exact same way that you did, right? Like, it it is a uh, working through the these questions of trauma and you know uh, post traumatic stress, like these things through the kind of language of addiction and certainly the visual language of addiction, right? Like the way that this thing is shot, the way that there's this kind of, um, I don't know, aggressive reservedness on her part, right? Like, uh, like I, I can, I can now go do this there. You know, there's a, you were talking about the acting earlier. There's some really strong kind of mocap performance that goes on here. Um, but I also think like the, the connecting piece here, right. Is that, addiction for the prestige drama is the lingua franca of why do things why do things happen to these characters who have problems right like this is hbo straight up right this is the wire uh you know this is mcnulty's whole deal um uh you know specifically i think the fifth season of that positions you know he, he both is drinking and having issues there uh but also the kind of inventing the serial killer plot thing that goes on there that's entirely processed in this exact same style and uh, Bullock and Deadwood kind of functions the same way too, even though he is not explicitly an addict in, in in any way, right? They present the reason he does all these things around justice through the language and, and visual language of addiction, right? So, like for me, I think I think you're exactly right uh, that it's doing that, and it's doing that precisely because this is the the tool in 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 the toolbox that they have to go for. I actually wish that they if if I wish they went one step further, right? I wish that there was some sort of um, actual commitment to the thing here, right? Like to to really thinking a little bit more intently about it because we we see her go into the thing and like kind of into the depths of of relapse essentially. But then there's not. I mean, I don't know. We can talk about. We'll get to the very end, but I think actually they should have committed to the bit here, right? Like I think the extension of Grace to Ellie is the big mistake of the film, or not film, sorry, <laughs> uh oh, uh, of the game. I think that I think truly that that uh, if this is where you're going to go, you need to really commit to it, and I think it would have made the game much. Stronger. Yeah, well, um, it, it's interesting yeah. though. Like I don't, I don't know exactly where this game needs to end to land that better. I think ultimately Ellie's arc of addiction is she will lose everything which is a cynical view i think a lot of people hold of addicts is your the end goal of your life by your own decisions is you're just going to lose everything and that's not true you know i have a lot of my friends that i had pre-addiction still have great relationships with my family um i don't have a child but i have a dog who still loves me that dog wasn't alive before i got sober uh and that, now that I'm thinking about it a little more, like, that is uh, an unfortunate thing this game decides to do is that, like, 
And I think it's where the sto- the themes of violence butt up against the themes of addiction, where it's like, to tell the violent story, Ellie has to lose everything. But when you think about like the addiction themes, that's a pretty problematic and cynical view of addiction and recovery that like doesn't it doesn't serve anyone to tell an addict they can and will lose everything because they know that if they did that if anything they're probably using because they're afraid of that um but but i mean the thing i think that i would quibble with here is that she doesn't lose everything right i mean she loses all of these like standards of middle classness that have been somehow imported into the post-apocalypse right but the thing she doesn't lose is grace right i mean in a very classical kind of christian way weirdly enough um, there is a moment, a literal flashback moment. It's another one of those that we were talking about. It's the inverse of the trauma thing, right? It's the same mechanism, but it is it is to import the good part of Joel into her to keep her from killing in the very last instance. And I think that's actually a huge error. I think that, that uh, not losing everything in the addiction sense, but I think the recognition of grace for Ellie should come after making the worst mistake not before doing and i think actually it resolves the whole plot much better to actually kill abby at the end and leave you know the final seraphite child to go on and live some sort of life right i and then ellie has to live with the reality of having done it i think that is a much for me compelling a much more compelling ending i think i think you got to commit in some ways yeah the game i also feel like and maybe this is getting away from the conversation a little bit but i think the game can't fully commit to ellie as the villain by the end and it like by the end of abby section it is clearly like centered on like ellie is the villain of this game but then once you retake control of ellie it wants you to love her again even though you're gonna go on this last brutal rampage you're going to get the moment of her and Joel. It's the only time in the whole game where you get to have a nice moment between her and Joel. And even then it's like pretty contentious, um, but it can't ever commit to its vision of Ellie and the ending. It really slips here and it's like, yeah, but you still love her, right? Like she's still a little scamp that you've known since she was so young. It is. So I think, I think we should honestly just kind of skip right to talking about this because it's like, Oh, they're evil greasers. Hold in on. Santa Barbara. We, we, Yes. One played by the famous rapper Logic. Oh, Did you know that? What? The when Ellie gets when Ellie gets strung upside down, the guy who gets uh-huh. killed by the clicker that's hanging, that's Logic. That's wild. Yeah. Wow. There you go. Uh, Annie <laughs> said that the main guy looked like someone on Pawn Stars. That uh-huh. was her take. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think he looks like a John Goodman character. Uh, <laughs> he is so unique in the in the visual universe of The Last of Us. He's the only guy who looks like him. It's really weird. <laughs> I think he looks like the West Coast Chopper guy. Yeah, he does. Yeah. I mean, pick a reality show and the you know, you're you're fifty fifty on him looking like a guy. Yeah. He just looks like <laughs> any rockabilly dude who's ever existed. Oh, don't do it, man. <laughs> don't do it. We don't need to do it. Like I yeah. Uh, no, yeah, can we take five minutes? I know that we are pushing time limits here, but can we take five minutes to talk about evil greasers? Like what the fuck? Why even bother? Let's let's talk about evil greasers. Um so we go to Santa Barbara. There is there is first the scene in Santa Barbara with Abby and Lev where we we learn what well, we kind of knew before they're looking for fireflies. Um, uh, can you believe it? They actually find some, or they find a ham radio that that contacts them. It is this interesting thing the game does where it's there are only two good factions of people in the world, and it's Jackson and the fireflies. You know that like the WLF have been entirely. Uh, deconstructed as have the Seraphites as have 
the evil greasers that we will run into uh, soon. But it's like, it, Abby was kind of disenchanted with the Fireflies at the beginning of this game, but then becomes a a believer committed to the cause again by the end of it. I... I don't know. It is it is kind of offering hope for the like see there are some good people still in the world. I think is probably the the story purpose of it. Um I I don't really know. It is weird that it's just the fireflies. I know they couldn't like introduce a new new faction, but it does make the world feel fairly small that in this in this country with essentially no long distance communication other than ham radios and whatever the only good people being doing stuff around are still just fireflies that group from the first game who we kind of liked um i don't know did did you like these parts like aren't they radical terrorists stuff aren't they well i mean then they weren't they blowing up you know they were they were they were fighting the government uh you know the the fascist government i mean whatever but it's i mean what else are you gonna do to wrap this up right like where it's I don't know. I don't know if it matters whether I like it or not. It just the game needs to end, and Abby needs somewhere to go. So it's like, oh, why not send her back to the far, the Fireflies? It also, in some ways, resolves Owen's plotline. She is going to at least be someone yeah. who gets to live the dream of Owen. Um, I don't know. I didn't really think too much about it. It is maybe the uh, uh, maybe the one time in the game that Abby smiles, which I do think is a nice moment. Uh, is like you you see her it almost it looks so unusual on her face that it looks like the face app smile thing but like she does you know like she she is she is excited to meet the fireflies and then of course no no good deed goes unpunished uh, immediately they are ambushed by um by these horrible people outside who Cameron as you said uh there need to be an even worse you know in in the same way kind of that you had david's group in the first game of like surprise they're cannibals it's like we need to find just the most irredeemable people in the entire universe of this series to then go and kill with a silent submachine yeah. gun turns out slavers though what are they using the slaves I, for it, it unclear i i truly don't know because um, it's not like you they have like a small farm but you don't need an army of slaves for that like it's never clear why no. they are just keeping people host captive they they are just evil they are just evil people um yeah uh and so then then we switch to ellie uh you've got some more combat sections uh you get a silent submachine gun and you start killing these guys you go up to a big compound kind of i think one of only two places in the game that you can like use the clickers and other infected on the enemies they uh in in the way that they are so stupid and so evil uh just have chained up infected and are taunting them inches away um do you cameron do you feel in a in a uh the evil greaser thing that i keep referencing is a just king things observation which is no matter no matter the era no matter the setting stephen king will find a way to have evil greasers in his story um y'all also talk about on that pod a lot the sense of like evil destroying itself is a very stephen king moral universe thing where it's like hey at the end of at the end of the day evil's so dumb 
uh, and bad that it's just going to cause its own destruction. Do you think that these guys standing like two inches away from infected people just begging you to shoot the chains is essentially an evil destroys itself fable? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, like the evil destroys itself deal is just like central to genre literature, right? Like it is it, it is part and parcel of, uh, you know, it, it's the it's the Western too, right? Like the 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 black hat is gonna go get a posse together of evil dudes who will betray each other or they're gonna be incompetent or they're you know gonna be uh too murderous too too ideally murderous or whatever right uh whereas like the good cowboy is gonna have like his gang of people who are good right and who care about each other and are part of the community or not asocial right like and that the same thing happens in fantasy, you know, the, there's a way of reading the Lord of the Rings that is also a similar thing. And I think that really is partially where Stephen King is pulling it from. So, yeah, it's like a big staple. It's just rarely so goofy, right? Like it's rarely it so, is so goofy, right? It's goofy. I think that's actually my real problem. I think all of this is bad. Like I think everything that is between Ellie showing up or not really Abby being kidnapped and, and Ellie freeing Abby is all terrible and it's because it's goofy right it feels i feel the same way that blake does about the that boss fight between the two of them right like this is perfunctory we all know what's going on it's incredibly boring i don't need a submachine gun like that's not why i'm playing this game certainly that's not why i'm on the off ramp for this game is to like rambo it up right like this is the rambo 2 moment right (laughs) of like what's going on this is the the half-life 2 gravity gun like we did it you can have one but right it would be better if we had a gravity gun right it would be better if it were so ridiculous (laughs) right um just give her uh, a bazooka yeah give her the ability to mind control the infected right like that's a that's an evolution of her immunity (laughs) like i don't give a shit at this point right whatever like it's all wasting time until we get to the actual final fight um and all the stuff at the very end is you know mechanistically there is something so i don't know outside of the 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 mental framework or the conceptual framework that this game has ever, these games have ever had for these characters. Like what happens with Abby essentially being enslaved for weeks, months. I mean, like there's something going on with a commitment to thinking about that, you know, the emaciation, all of that, that is way outside of the realm of the, of consideration for the rest of it. That, that is a thing that, would show up in, you know, speaking of things that are rotten, like a Lars von Trier film, right? Like, this is the, you know, uh, like, acceptable art cinema. Oh, shit, our protagonist has had truly the worst possible shit happen to them, and now you're witnessing it from the outside, right? That, and, and that's what's about to happen with the fight that we're talking about, too, right? That That is a, other than Dina's head being slammed into the ground, it is the most excessive bit of violence that we get in the whole game while also weirdly enough being like Metal Gear Solid 4 um and you know you that that's partially why my distrust of not committing to the end you know exists right is that you're really pulling on ideas here that are out of the revenge genre you know Blake you were referring to that earlier right like it, this is out of the you know uh, uh like the park you know mindset right you know the, the old boy universe right um uh, of thinking about things that that revenge and uh, the vagaries of human life outside of your very particular narrative vision of yourself will 
cause all kinds of horrible things to happen. And when you decide to execute on revenge, you are making a deeply individual choice that has consequences. And the game, in the last instance, looks right into the headlights of that moment and says, no, no, I won't. <laughs> no, I won't make any bad decisions, like truly bad decisions. I'll be good in my last moment. And I, I just distrust that move so much. There is, there is a moment before you get to the camp that the first time I was playing, Ellie gets caught in a trap. Uh, she smashes into a tree. She gets impaled by like a, uh, you know, a branch sticking out. And I did have a moment where I was like, what if this is Ellie's end? Like, what if she just dies here and this is how the game ends, which would be a ballsy way to end a game. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so you have you have this whole sequence. There is a a strange moment that again, I was like, what is this? What are they doing here where Ellie uh is fighting one of the biker gang uh in like next to a prison cell kicks the guard back up against the prison cell and all of the people that they've been keeping as slaves like kill the guard and then come out and it seems like they might thank ellie but then they see that ellie is bit and so they essentially have like a a very tense standoff where they're just pointing guns at each other and then they run away and it's just another thing it's like the game's doing a prison break now like, you know, and Ellie, Ellie doesn't give a shit about it, and the game doesn't really give a shit about it. It kind of just seems like a way to set the compound on fire as a backdrop for your last fight. But it is just another thing where it's like, thematically, this could be something, but I don't think the game has anything that it's doing with it other than there was... What's weird... Okay. What is weird about this last section is there are many things that seem like it is unequivocally good that Ellie came to Santa Barbara. You know, that that not only did she kill all these, uh, the, the evil greasers and let the people out of this slavery prison, uh, Abby would have died if Ellie did not come down, which I have no idea if that is doing anything intentionally or is just a contrivance, because if it is intentional, what could you possibly make out of it? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know, um... But she finds Ellie, or Abby, and she saves her uh, before demanding that they fight to the death. They never have a real confrontation. They have violent confrontations, but the two never talk to each other. Even in this moment where the player would probably expect it and want it most, they still just don't talk. They're like, which I don't know. I kind of like the idea that it's like, hey, we both know why I'm here. So let's just do it. Um but there's never, like, a conversation, really, like, a real conversation between Abby and Ellie, which I think is cool. Because other games, you know, like, uh, we've been referencing Kojima stuff. Other games, we'd have to have an hour-long chat between these two, and it would go on forever. Um, mm -hmm. I do kind of like them just always showing up and be like, all right, let's fucking duke it out. <laughs> kind of like the chicken and a Peter Griffin and family guy, honestly. That's right. That's exactly what it says. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, it is. I mean, we talked about the, the kind of legacy of Joel on how Ellie understands relationships. And this does kind of seem like one where it's just like, Joel is the most important person in her life. And nothing about him has given her the emotional capability to, like, have a real conversation with uh, someone who hurt her, you know? And it's like, it that is kind of undercut by the thing that happens in the middle of this fight with Joel. But I do think that it is, you know, the, the, read, the read of just, like, 
Ellie does not know how to deal with the things that she's feeling in any way other than violence because she has never had, like, a figure that loved her that, like, showed her how to do that. You know, that the most formative figure in her life was this man who only knew how to deal with things through violence and then he was violently taken from her and, like, she just doesn't have the vocabulary to do anything except that. So... Abby and Ellie fight. Oh, wait. No, Cameron, were you about to say something? Just one really quick thing. What's fascinating to about that to me is, you know, there's The Last of Us Part 1, what is now The Last of Us Part 1, The Last of Us Part 2. There is also the Faith Aaron Hicks and uh, Druckmann authored um, American Dreams prequel, which is a comic book, which is canonical. It is it is the the pre-story of Ellie from the thing. Um, and then we also have, uh, you know, the DLC, you know, that, that's in there that is now part of part one, but, you know, was was separate. And what's so interesting to me is that in this, I you know, Blake, I think is also going back because I have a similar kind of like um, when, when this game, when these games get reduced down to its cycles of violence, I also am like, well, there's a lot of weird stuff in here that doesn't fit necessarily with that. And this is another part of it is that actually within the official documentation of all the things that have been seen in these games. Ellie has had lots of models for different forms of relationship mm. and has had people who have cared about her. We get a little bit about her mother. We get a long extended stuff about Marlene, both in the uh, actual game. You know, um, we see someone. Um, oh, I'm blanking on her name. The other smuggler with Joel. Um Tess, right? She sacrifices her life for Ellie. We get the two brothers, right, who are have a deep connection to one another, and you know that's the what happens there is horrifying. And then we get the entirety of uh, Abby's crew, who are like people who deeply care about one another, won't betray one another, even as someone you, you know Michael Myers like picks them off one by one, right? Like, in, in fact, these are games that and and the narrative universe is incredibly capacious for ways of thinking about relationships um, and thinking about ways that that um, humans interact with one another. And the game has to purposefully pair all that off, right? What we yep. don't ever get is Ellie having a flashback to um, the two brothers, right? We don't ever have her flashing back to Tess. And that is, that's a directorial decision, right? That is a narrative decision. In our brains, as players, we have all that experience. I have my 60 hours or so of The Last of Us narrative. And if I wrote it all down in bullet point form, that does not comport to what the game cinematically and what the game kind of mechanically is telling me. And that, to me, is the really interesting inflection here, right? Um, that there... It is bigger than we're given. Last week, we had uh, Julie Muncy on the show who wrote uh, her review was essentially the the Last of Us 2 is the the ultimate daughter game, you know, that, that we've had so many dad games and this is a daughter game. And part of being the daughter game is like the most and maybe the only important relationship is with the father. You know, that like Joel is absent for almost all of this game and yet looms over it larger than any other figure in Ellie's life. Yep. I mean, everyone else from the first game doesn't exist, right? Just non-existent. Um, all right, Blake. Uh, Tekken 8. Abby, <laughs> Ellie versus Abby. Uh, Abby and Ellie fight. It's a knockout, beat-down brawl. Um, it, I mean, it, it's, yeah. It's, 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 I don't know if Noah... <laughs> Noah talked in his video about how Death Stranding uh, spoofed this type of thing a year before. I don't fully know if that moment in Death Stranding was as smart as that, but I do think it is a very comparable moment. 
of just like i mean i think i think the moment in death stranding is intentionally stupid and this feels unintentionally stupid right 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 i just i just don't necessarily think that moment in death stranding was a big bit of satire on stuff in games like this because uncharted mm-hmm. 4 did a similar thing like the games have done these dumbass fights um it sucks frankly uh abby bites off a few of ellie's fingers so that ellie can't play guitar anymore and everyone loves that scene where she fucks up the pearl jam song it's like all right whatever um God, it's a Pearl Jam song. Yeah. Just I, look, I can that, fuck that, up a Pearl Jam song, too, just <laughs> for the that, record. That actually quite, and I mean this sincerely, when I started the game again and remember, had the flash of all the Pearl Jam significance, I found it embarrassing, literally. I find it so, as as the youth say these days, cringe, right? Like, the, the commitment to that for no reason. And they had to, like, invent timeline reasons why Joel would know this song. <laughs> yeah. but, right? It's like, why not pick literally anything else? Uh, you know, I like Pearl Jam just fine. I think they're a good band. They got some good-ass songs. Uh, but, like, there's definitely a dad-level fan of Pearl Jam that Neil Druckmann's committing to here that is right, very right. annoying. Right. I like Pearl Jam fine, too, but not this song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the songs that they made 20 years yeah. before the song, which are cla- American classics, right? The song that is just, what if we said all the themes of the game in yeah. our chorus? Just, yeah. just one after another. So I think here at this fight, in my head, there are two ways to end this section that might both be better. One is Ellie just kills Abby. Like, I don't know, maybe kills Lev, but probably doesn't kill Lev. Um, And that's the end. The other one that I'm kind of into that ends the same without the fight is they get to the boat and that's when Ellie gives up. And like, you still get the sitting in the ocean thing, which I think is a great, great shot. I think like there is a way to end this game, even maybe with the flashback, without the fight where they get to the boat, you can see Ellie like wrestling with it and then i don't know price says nothing to her and then just sits down and abby goes off i think the fight is very dumb and goofy and there are so many it's just, ways it's to, just so gamey yeah there's so many ways you can take this ending if you want to commit to ellie having a change of heart like there's a way to do it without her having to inflict and receive violence that is probably more effective and interesting of her just like silently giving up on it and sitting down um but as it is you have to sit through this obnoxious fight that's um just feels bad because like i mean i assume it's the point but like abby is starving to death so you're just beating a starving woman (laughs) as a like a child is in the boat who is clearly on death's door like it it, it feels just like needlessly and i do think sorry it feels needlessly cruel for the moment that immediately follows it where ellie shows grace it's like so what was the point of the cruelty either commit to the cruelty and kill abby or don't try to do it both ways yeah do you think you're supposed to feel ashamed a a change or ashamed oh ashamed like because i when when playing it right and even rewatching just the final bit of it you know 30 minutes before we recorded this i had this distinct and looking back at my notes too i had this really distinct feeling of shame and i think that that's program you know i think you're supposed to but then it clearly is not communicated to huge portions of the fan base and like whatever i can't control for that neither can neil Druckmann or Haley gross or anyone else right but it seems like if you can if you can play this moment and not feel shame they shouldn't have bothered right like i'm I'm in the same spot as you are blake like both of those strategies to me that you just lined out are beautiful ways of ending this game 
um and rather than thing but jacob sorry i you know i i think when uh many of the reviews of this game were kind of on the like jesus i get it it's killing people is bad violence is bad which i think is an oversimplification of what the game is saying but i do think that this scene is so knockdown drag out for explicitly that point which is not a point that i need to be taught any further personally you know like i do i do think that uh you know it is it is maybe the most explicitly villainous ellie is other than like pulling Nora down into the infected hospital or whatever, but like holding the knife to Lev is so obviously fucking just like a super villain move that is, you know, it is like there is no way that you can be proud of your protagonist uh, when she is doing this. I think the fact that that uh, Abby is starving is very intentional and it's like, yeah, it feels bad and it's just like that's, I don't need it. You know, 30 hours into the game, I, I don't need this much misery to convince me that the violence is bad which i do think in this case it's kind of all that it's doing um and then there is this flashback um we see we see uh, a, a lovely joel haloed by a porch light in the same way that she's seen joel's dying face uh you know in, in flashbacks before um but then well i guess it's so she just gets the flash of it. She lets Abby and Lev go. And then it's back at the farmhouse that you get the full scene. You know, we didn't talk about... This This is... where Look, we're going way long. There is that scene where Ellie and Abby kiss. Or not Ellie and Abby. <laughs> Ellie Wait, and what? Dina kiss. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> if you beat it, if, if you beat it in five hours, you get the Ellie-Abby kiss scene. Um, no, the Abby and Dina kiss. Abby and Dina. Ellie and Dina. Jesus. The names in this game are messing me up. Okay, so there is this the scene that Ellie and Dina kiss in the uh, dance, which was part of a like a big E3 demo. Happens at almost the very end of the game, I think. You know, very strategically positioned, so you feel so bad about Ellie and uh, Ellie leaving Dina. You know, it's like their their highest moment and then their lowest moment. This is kind of a similar thing in that it is at Ellie's lowest moment that she remembers the kind side of Joel, and their conversation is essentially. Um, uh, them finally talking in a real way about Joel's decision. Joel says, I would have done it all exactly the same, which I think is an insane thing to say, uh, but that is that is how he feels, and he uh, cannot grapple with the fact that he took agency away from Ellie. Um, but, you know, I think more importantly to Ellie's motivations, uh, she says, I don't think I can ever forgive you, but I would like to try. And that's that's kind of the point of the scene, and I think you know what we're extension of grace is a very good way of phrasing it because i think it is supposed to bring ellie to the most unsympathetic character and then give her back a bit of sympathy i guess in that it is her like the death of joel was extra painful because they had decided to work on their relationship again which is just it is so strange and this the first time i played through the game i think i just kind of took it as like okay here's the reveal it's you know it's it, joel's death is even sadder than we thought but like the narrative construction of a flashback is chosen by the writers it is not this is the only time ellie has remembered this scene is like right now 
but it feels like a twist to reveal that she was more sympathetic than we thought, but it certainly doesn't change how I feel about anything that she did in the game. I'm not like, oh, she was right to go on her, you know, like, completely depraved revenge quest. Um, and so I don't... Uh, Noah has a reading on this that I will talk about at the end, but I'm, I'm curious how y'all read the scene and kind of its placement in the story, because this... This time, I just found it very like confusing. I kind of didn't, I didn't get it. Oh, you you can say I have I have nothing. I think that it's uh, pointless. I think that uh, I think it would have been better for it to be that micro flash that we get just of his of him on the porch. You know, she's she's killing Abby and has her head underwater and everything, and we get the flash and then she lets her up. Right? I think it would be better. I think it would be better to have that image contextless that Joel that there's some image of Joel in his best moment, right? Of sitting on the porch, haloed by the light, as you said, right? With the guitar, the thing that's resonant of him. There's something about what is good in him that she remembers that makes this rational. I think, I mean, I just trust the audience to figure, like, if you accept what's occurring here, I think everyone gets it. Like, I don't think there's any ambiguity. And I again, I think it's like a big, you know, cartoon Krusty the Clown Hammer uh, bonkness on the old noodle here being like, actually, did you know that this image was full of meaning and the meaning was he was a good guy? By the way, we, you know, overwhelmingly, we accept that he's a good guy, right? He's a conflicted man. He did bad stuff, whatever. But like, it's not as if we've been r running through this whole thing being like, you know who was wrong about his relationship with Elliot was Joel, right? Like the game, you know, both games have it stacked in in Joel's favor to the point where the dominant read of the first game remains Joel was right to do what he did, right? You know, uh, however I feel about that, however people do, do a little skimming of people talking about it both critically and non-critically, and you're going to find most people saying, yeah, that was right. So... Uh, yeah, I think it's just a big old bonk on the on the head. I think it's pointless. I think it's also confusing. It doesn't, it, you know, it's not like it's not memento, right? Where we like get a piece of information that goes, "Oh my god, it changes the whole yeah. the last hour of my life is different." She should never have killed those greasers, right? It's none of that. So, I I think it is, you know, again, I think all of this is downstream from things that feel right to show up on HBO. And uh, I think this is a thing that is like some Westworld shit, right? Um, uh, it, oh, mechanistically, it almost is exactly Westworld season one in terms of a piece of information that should give you more context for what you saw before, except it doesn't do that, right? But the form of it, right? The editing of it, where it shows up and how, the tonal change of it, right? It's idyllic. It's all the way back. That's all stuff that, that is in the script of a Westworld episode, but just doesn't land here. So uh, this scene popped up, and Jacob, first off, let me agree with you that uh, him saying I'd do it all over again, insane thing to say after everything you've put Ellie through. Um, but I became 19 years old again watching this. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I'm such a fucking mark, dude. I, the first Last of Us came out when I was 19, and I, I've written since then for Game Informer, you can go find it, about how my uh, opinion on the first Last of Us has changed pretty dramatically in a way that bumps me out. Like, I really wish I would not have replayed that game. Um, but, you know what? The, the game still, just like, because of when I played it and just how it hit me at the time, being very young, uh, I do like these characters a lot. They hold a big place in my heart. And this is like the only moment in this game where Joel and Ellie have a good moment with each other. And even then, it's contentious. But like, it is a moment of... 
building a bridge where once there was, you know, ashes. Uh, and I was just such a fucking mark for this moment, dude. I got me so good. I was like, brain off, head empty. I am just emotional right now. And I'm you got you got fan serviced. They they brought him back. I got fan service, dude. And like, I'm just gonna be a Last of Us fan forever. And uh... yeah, look, we gotta be honest about that because you know, Jacob, you said this this earlier, but I had the same feeling of when the start menu changes. I didn't have any of that for what you just talked about, Blake. Like, there's nothing there. And also, you know, I had written by the time this game came out, I'd replayed that first game so many times that if there was an allure to it for me at some point, it had been obliterated by just like the rote repetition. But that start menu did do the same thing for me of like, fuck, they made it, right? You know what I mean? Like this emaciated, uh, you know, Abby truly is just, you know, it, it, not to keep going back to like weird Christian metaphors, right? But she nearly Jobian in terms of like just shit that trickles downhill, uh, you know, and begins rolling downhill to just to just ruin her life, including being enslaved for an innumerable amount of time and they they've made it probably like that that to me i was like oh they got me damn it yep uh and look that's the power of the image too right that's just one fuck that's a, that is a start menu change right look it's right. sunrise it's just looking at a sunrise and you're like ah oh, this has meaning to me right and like that's video if there's a power of the medium it's that an option it's like if it, you know it's 2001 you're watching the gladiator dvd after it finishes, it goes back and he's like there idyllically with his family who had been slayed, you know, in in this like heaven space. And you'd be like, wow, yeah, they did it, you know. Dude, here's the thing. Melodrama, uh, uh, when things are on the nose, yeah, it works. I'm putting it yeah. on my own nose. I'm like, let me have it, dude. Melodrama is 3,000 years old. And the reason it's 3,000 years old is it fucking works. <laughs> like, yeah, dude. It's an efficient form. <laughs> Absolutely. This scene between Joel and Ellie, it took me back to the summer of 2013, 19 years old in my parents' basement. And I was like, I just fucking love him so much. <laughs> I would have done the same thing. I would have done the same damn thing, Ellie. And she'd be like, you literally missed the point of both games. Then. <laughs> you are not immune to propaganda. Uh, <laughs> yeah. She's like, were you paying attention to either game, Blake? I was like, doesn't matter. I would do the same thing all over again. So uh, so Noah's read on this scene, which I think is, is a very interesting one, is not what I got emotionally, but I just like his reading of it, is the, the conversation where Ellie says, uh, you know, I don't know if I can forgive you for that, but I'm going to try... Noah says that like his he's like Ellie now realizes or we now realize as Ellie that like it would be easy for her to forgive Joel because she has done so much worse than him you know that like her her like emotional journey to uh forgive Joel has essentially been replaced with the emotional journey that she is beginning maybe which is like how to live with herself um which I think is you know, like, I don't know. I don't like the rest of... I don't like the idea that the rest of Ellie's life is defined by Joel. I, I find that a very kind of disappointing ending. And so I do think that Ellie kind of... Ellie's new journey having, like, the figure of Joel in her mind replaced with the figure of herself who has done monstrous things and needs to figure out a way to, like, live um, is an interesting one, but it's... It's really not a reading that I had when uh, playing it, and so, you know, I just, I want to bring it up because I found it poetic, but I, I did not find it, uh, it wasn't there for me emotionally when I when I encountered the scene. That, I, I mean, that's interesting, but that 
that is a level of introspection on the part of a character that never happens in the 60 hours of both of these games. Like, mm-hmm. just truly. Like, no character has that rich of an internal life, right? That it would it would be momentous for our understanding of how these games work if that were, like, the, you know, the read of that thing. I mean, I think that's a beautiful um, way of interpreting it. Uh, but, uh, but I think that's wrong. I don't agree with that. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? Like I, sometimes you got to put your cards on the table. I think, you know, no, and I don't always agree about stuff. And this is a moment where that, that is occurring. I, I think that that is way too charitable to the character. Um, and I really wonder how, how does he, um, how does he fit that with the next scene with the, with the, the 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 big visual metaphor of a lack in one's life that has to that cannot be repaired, and so then therefore must be. You know, I I think uh, I I'm not sure I'd be putting words in his mouth here, but I think the idea would be like uh, from the bottom of the barrel you can go up. You know that that now that everything everything of that life has been essentially wiped away, and so what she what her what her quest that we will not accompany her on is like how to live now uh without you were literally just telling me tyler durden words like you were you were actually literally telling me the like the tyler durden monologue from fight club right now why do we know what a bidet is (laughs) oh no he says duvet duvet. (laughs) tyler durden knows all about a a, a bidet it's the duvet that's the issue (laughs) jacob how many fight club posters do you have in your college dorm uh more than two Uh, this has been revealed on a something rotten previous. Um, okay, so anyway, uh, Ellie gets back to the house. It's empty. Uh, she can't play the Pearl Jam song. Uh, oh, gosh, the, the metaphor, what revenge uh, reaps upon the person seeking it. Um, she walks out the door. There is just one thing that I want to talk about in this scene, um, which is that there is a really interesting camera movement. And this is not a game that I think does things with the camera very often i think almost entirely it is the cinematography is supposed to be kind of invisible like it's it's never really making a statement but there's just the scene at the end where ellie leaves the room where she's playing guitar and the camera stays still for a long time and then does like a very slow push up to the window to watch her walking away and it is noticeable enough that i feel like it is the game separating us from her in a way that feels kind of intentional that like for for so much of the game it is just the camera is following ellie exactly they are for all intents and purposes the same you know that that how we perceive ellie is how she perceives the world um and this being kind of this invisible third party holding the camera feels almost like an intentional detachment from that, which is not something that I remembered from my first time, but I, I found really just, like, interesting, and I, the game doesn't do that much with its camera work, and so I found it notable. I think you're probably right. I also think it's a... a, uh, a uh, What's the word I'm fucking looking for? A callback to the start menu of the first game. Yeah, that's, that's, for sure. what, that's yes. what I think, too. I'm actually, like, trying to check to make sure that... But that that's also the... which Which actually, like recast the first game right so is the old decayed windowsill from the start menu of the first game is that actually the far future like is that image you know the 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 future of all these people after they are dead um which is like i don't know but that that is interesting jacob i noticed that camera movement as well and only one other time in the game did i notice the camera doing something cool um and it wasn't didn't seem really like 
thematically. Mm-hmm. There, it didn't seem like there was any thematic reasoning. Just like the way they moved the camera through an action moment was really neat. Um, yeah, there's like a it's like a front shot of Abby and Lev running. That's very good through multiple rooms. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I noticed yeah. that. Yeah, yeah I know. Uh, yeah, I uh, I noticed that moment as well too. But I just thought it was trying to kind of position itself in a way to call back the original start menu. I think I think that is also certainly true. Um, okay, uh, at the end of this record length, uh, something rotten. Uh, Cameron, I, I want to ask you, we talked about your, uh, your, your article on The Last of Us 1 being, quote-unquote, the greatest story ever told in video games. What is The Last of Us 2 in, in, in kind of its cultural context? Because it is, it is hard for me to figure out the effect that this game is having on conversations about stories in the same way that it felt very obvious what the first one's effect was. Um, have have you seen any, like, do you, ha- do you have an answer to that? I don't think I do. And in, in the same way that I wouldn't have an answer for, for that about the first one, you know, the, the last of us one comes out in a cluster of things that are all, you know, really defining what is the triple a narrative game. You know, you mentioned Bioshock infinite earlier. Right. And I think that from the last of us to Bioshock infinite, there's this kind of defining role. I don't know. I truly don't know. I mean, I think that probably if I were, if you were to ask me like, what is the defining narrative maneuver of this moment that it came out? It wouldn't be here. It would be, um, God of war, uh, you know, would be the actual game. That's like kind of defining what's going on. Uh, I mean here there's it for pacing reasons, the first game, love it or hate it, whatever. It has an undeniable forward driving pace. Um, and, and, uh, you can say to people, Hey, uh, remember winter, remember fall, remember summer. And people know what you're talking about, which is like kind of wild to think about. You told me for this episode, Jacob, you were like, yeah, we're doing day three of Abby through the end of the game. And I was like, what, what happened in day three? Right? Like there, there's a way that, uh, this game, uh, it has a compelling narrative framework to it. I think people who are invested in the game are invested in the story, um, but I don't think it is like defining to a sector of games in the way the previous game is. And part of that has to do with the fact that overwhelmingly, you know, if we're talking about human beings who are engaging with narrative experiences, this is not what they're engaging with, right? They're engaging with uh, gotcha games on their phone and these long form um kind of uh, serialized narratives that are ongoing forever, or it's Destiny 2 and Fortnite, right? Uh, Both of which are live service games that are redefining what, you know, in terms of en masse human beings, what are we doing in our games? Those are just different narrative frameworks, like, you know, and they're not better or worse or whatever, but they are different. And you really can't, someone who's a narrative designer director, you know, you, you can tell me I'm wrong here, but I think it's very hard to be in that universe of things and then look at The Last of Us Part Two and then extract beats that are helpful or useful for you, right? Um, and uh, so I think that, you know, this is the waning moment, you know, things might change economically, but I think we're in the waning moment of the prestige narrative game, um, you know, certainly this style of it, um, you know, uh, uh, and, and there, there are only so many, not just blockbusters, but there's only so many, like, there's only so many Oppenheimers that can happen, right? There's only so many, like, uh, Nolan-esque, massive, budgeted, singular, uh, trusting the gut of this person with their massive team of people, right? And there, there's only, in the industry, there's only room for so many Neil Druckmanns, right? Like, there's only, on the calendar, 
so so much room for The Last of Us. And that the room on that calendar 10 years ago was there was room for seven The Last of Us, right? I mean, even Assassin's Creed, you know, I, this is always on my brain all the time. But Assassin's Creed takes years off now, right? Not just a year, but like a couple years, right? Between Valhalla uh, and the new one, I think we've had two two full holiday seasons. So um, I, I think the the part of the answer to that is... The Last of Us Part One, what is now Part One, matters so much as the greatest story, you know, in games. Big quotation marks because it was in the right place at the right time, pulling on the right strings to to have the right kind of impact. And I think at this moment, for this type of game, uh, you know, game development cycles are so long. We have really rocketed into the auteur moment, and that's really changing the expectation. And the economics are just different, right? Like. The industry at this moment is more consolidated than it has been probably in my lifetime, right? Like really and truly. Um, and so the question really is that how much how much is this going to define the Sony universe approach versus the billions and billions of dollars of the Activision, uh, Microsoft, you know, conglomerate, whatever, you know, the, the Wayland yutani that, that is forming over there um, and what they decide that, narrative games are going to look like in the future because look that's the reality of it we are downstream from mass economic movement um and what we perceive of as good or 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 artful or beautiful or whatever is is it's not in us entirely right that is structured it's social uh it has to do with uh what our media environment looks like and Hard to fight a billion dollars. So that's all to say, like, I don't know. It is notable to me that I can't think of any narrative design talk that I've watched or YouTube video from a you know someone professionally in the field or even a personal conversation I've had with people who do that work. I can't think of anyone who has mentioned this game. Not positive, not negative, period. Um, and I talked to a lot of people, you know, Blake, you do too. And I don't know, you know, what that looks like on your side, but that's weird and notable. Whereas... For a decade, you could not get rid of The Last of Us. People still talk about it. I hear it mentioned today way more than The Last of Us Part Two. still. So, yeah. So what is the greatest story in a video game? Oh, it's The Last of Us Part One. Oh, and also, uh, it's uh, the underwater level of uh, Super Mario Brothers. I agree. It's Yakuza Zero. Yeah. <laughs> it's Yakuza Zero, for sure. <laughs> um, well, that brings us to the end of this Mammoth series on The Last of Us Part Two, the playthrough, at least. Blake and I will retur- be returning both with a very special uh, exclusive Nebula episode and a Q&A episode where we'll certainly talk about this being a AAA rotten game and all those other things that people want to know about. Um, Cameron, uh, I listened to perhaps more pod more separate podcasts with you on it than uh, any other individual person. Do you want to plug those podcasts and also uh, other things that you're working on that people would like to know about? Yeah. Uh, Well, thanks for having me on the show. I enjoyed it. And I'm glad that I could uh, bloat this episode by a full hour by doing the thing I'm doing. This That's the range touched of it. It it, it truly is. You know, uh, I'm uh, my apologies and or uh, ha 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 got him. Um, But uh, the yeah so uh over at rangedtouch.com or ranged touch on any given social media platform you can find the stuff it's me and michael lutz and danny and now austin walker on our new show shelved by genre um uh you can listen to me and michael on just king things who reading all of stephen king and publication order you don't need to read the books to have a good time listening to it um you can check it out uh shelved by genre is our new show that is delving into genre literature in a big general sense we're starting with gene wolf's book of the new sun which is like a big famously complicated and weird far future 
medieval kind of story. It's really odd. It's really hard. It's it's a uh, science fantasy, uh, which is kind of the genre label for it. It's weird. Uh, in the future, we'll be doing um, uh, William Gibson's The Sprawl trilogy. I know we're going to be doing Earthsea, the Le Guin novels. So it's really just genre broadly. Um, and right now, that's multiple episodes per book. But at some point, that might get a little bit faster, depending on how long the books are. Uh, we do a bunch of other stuff there as well. Uh, we make YouTube videos. Uh, my book, The World is Born from Zero, is out now. I think you can buy it for $22 in paperback. I strongly encourage you to do so. It's about science fiction video games. Um, and and the use of science fiction in games and how video games themselves are inherently science fictional, that they pull speculation out of us and that they do stuff with us uh, as far as how we speculate about the world. It's an academic book, but I think it's readable by people who don't do academic stuff. That was the goal. I, I hope hope that's the case, but it's got chapters on The Last of Us Part 1 and 2, um, Valhalla, uh, some climate change games, A Hand with Many Fingers, Maybe another one that I'm blanking on. Uh, anyway, so that's the book. I'm working on a book on Assassin's Creed um, on the whole franchise. And I've also got the beginning of a project on Magic the Gathering going. So if you want to read me doing those things over the next couple years, there's going to be a lot of that stuff. Awesome. Well, uh, for Playcaster, my name is Jacob Keller. Uh, this has been Something Rotten on The Last of Us Part 2. We finally did it, everyone. We are done with The Last of Us Part 2. And I don't know what I'm going to do with the 900 hours a week that I now don't have to spend playing this game. Jacob, here's the thing. Sun the Rotten never ends. You got to start playing the next season like today. <laughs> and I'm going to do so almost immediately. <laughs> See you there, everyone. Bye.